0: Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio, Wednesday the 13th of November, deep, clenched in the bitter, icy fist of the Canadian winter. I cry out for freedom and questions on philosophy. Mike, who do we have on the line? All right. Manny, you are up first today. Manny, go ahead. Yes, Hello, Stefan.
1: Hello. How are you doing? Good. First time caller. Um, I hope I don't take an hour of your time, but I would like to try and get in two questions if it fits the time.
0: My, you, should, you should hope that you take an hour of my time because that means it's a great conversation. Well, that's true. Actually, but my brother is kind of waiting for me in an hour, so I don't think that will be, okay. be possible.
1: But anyways, um, my first question reg- is regarding uh, raising multilingual children. So basically, um, I'm planning on having my first child with my girlfriend. Um, but unlike a lot of people that I know, I'd like to actually – think it through before having children and i i my my first language is english you probably can tell my girlfriend's first language is chinese um but i'd like to give my first child and uh, any future children a leg up in terms of uh, linguistic skills so i was thinking uh and my girlfriend agrees to have our child in a third country, well, when I say third country, a country that speaks as a first language, a third language that neither of us speak. And the idea would be that I would speak to my child for the first X number of years exclusively in English. My wife would speak exclusively in Chinese. And our child would either go to a school or have a, an at-home teacher that would speak the local language, the third language. I was wondering what you thought about that.
0: Well, I don't know really what to think. I mean, it certainly sounds like you are interested in giving your child a wide range of skills. Uh, As far as I understand it, there is some research that says that there are sort of brain benefits to multi-language skills and so on. Uh, I have some reservations. And, you know, you obviously need to consult the literature on this to find it out. I, I have some reservations about multi-language uh, situations. So, I guess my first reservation is, I mean, I spoke German fluently when I was younger, and I don't speak German. I was saying, Peter geht an den See. <laughs> ich über I mean, I can't really speak much uh, German now, if any. And the reason for that, of course, is that I did not uh, keep it going. Now, of course, if you have a... Um, Conversation exclusively in one language your wife has in another Is going to school in another, that's certainly going to help. But any language which is not actively used tends to decay. So that's sort of one thing. Now, of course, if you can learn second or third languages as a kid, then it's a lot easier. Uh, But of course, there are lots of opportunity costs that occur, right? So if you're around the dinner table, what are you going to uh, speak when you're all together? Yes,
1: that's a good point.
0: So given that, I I
1: didn't think about that, but it's it's such an obvious point, I should have thought about it. Um, How would you recommend modifying the strategy that that I outlined? Assuming, of course. Well, I See, that,
0: I don't know. Again, I, I don't know. Certainly when you're all together, like if you're going to Disneyland or wherever, wherever it is you're going to be, then you're all going to have to speak a, a common language. Otherwise, right. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. pretty schizoid. Maybe <laughs> Esperanto or I don't know. But it's going to be um, a little cobalt, but it's going to be a little schizoid that way. So I don't think that you can really exclusively speak one language or, or the other to the child. I mean, here in Canada, you know, there's some value to... Uh, to speaking French, for sure. and uh, But, you know, that wasn't particularly for me, because I could simply hire people who spoke French. Uh, so it wasn't a huge deal. Now, if I had spent all that time learning French, and I took French from, like, grade 8 to, I think, grade 11 or 12, and it was a complete waste of time. Um, I, I'm not particularly skilled in learning other languages. Uh, I'm good with computer languages, just not other languages. So for me... It was not a good use of my time. I would much rather have spent that time developing my writing skills or, or in English or, or working on computers or some, something which actually I ended up using in my life. So uh, if you are teaching a child another language, you know, as you know from economics thinking or economic thinking, you get a positive benefit, but there's a hidden cost, which is all the time you're not spending teaching the child something else. So, it really depends on what it is uh, that you think is going to be the most valuable thing for your child. And uh, I think other languages can certainly be very helpful, but only if they go into a profession which values uh, other languages. So, if they're international salesperson, I'm sure that's helpful. If they're a doctor in a multilingual society, then, then that can be helpful. I mean, my wife knows three languages and she's found it to be uh, very helpful. And I know one language that I have really specialized in. You know, I mean, it, it, people sort of like the verbal duh skills <laughs> that I bring to the table uh, on the, uh, like in the show. And if I had spent time learning other languages, I would be less proficient and fluid in English. Uh, because it's taken a lot of work to extend and expand my knowledge of English. I mean, you, you, you still, I mean, you're born with a native tongue, but you can always get better at it. And so I'm very glad that I did not spend time learning other languages but rather specialized in one language. But that is a combination of uh, circumstances and also personal abilities and preferences. Like Sir Richard Burton, not the actor but the explorer, spoke like dozens of languages and picked them up like it was second nature. So I don't know. It's tough to say. I, I certainly think there's value. Of course there's value in just about any piece of knowledge you acquire. Is it the most valuable thing? that your child can acquire uh, relative to everything other, every other skill or piece of knowledge that, that child could acquire? Are they going to be able to maintain it to, to the point where, uh, you know, if you spend all this time learning a language and then you don't really use it and it decays, then there really, is, there really wasn't a whole lot of point. It was just a lot of wasted time. So I think these are, are sort of considerations that are worth figuring out. Uh, and, uh, you know, if if you end up going to, I don't know, Chile, and, you know, you speak uh, Spanish or Portuguese, I can't remember, and and then, you know, you don't really speak much, and then you find it's just easier to converse in English at home, then to what degree is Chinese valuable in Chile? I don't know. If child moves or whatever, then it's more valuable. So, uh, again, these are, I, I don't obviously have an answer. There is certainly advantages in learning a second language as there are in learning music. You know, Would you rather your child learn a second or third language or be really good at a musical instrument? Um, and, of course, the child's preferences have a strong sway in that as well. So I hope I've sufficiently evaded an answer, but these are just some considerations to the questions. Well, if I may uh, make some follow-on points.
1: Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. If, 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 the, if you know that your, your child in the future, which, which you can't know, uh, would want to become you know, a linguistic expert or need to be a linguistic expert in one language, then yes, it could detract from their ability to do so. I agree. But in terms of um, detracting from other skills, I guess maybe I should clarify. The idea behind the strategy that I was describing was that, you know, our child would basically absorb, as young children are much more capable of doing than people of our age, would absorb the languages spoken at home without formally learning them and would formally learn one language, which we all have to do anyway. So I don't think that the, the absorption of English and Chinese, which they would be doing just by speaking to both of us, would take away their ability to learn other non-language skills.
0: Well, but, but hold on a sec, because, and, and I, I, again, I'm no expert on this, as it's as, as just about anything, but my first thought would be, so written... What about written, right? I mean, if you're spending time teaching kanji as well as, what is it, Cyrillic or (laughs) Alpha romaic or whatever, uh, uh, Times New Roman, I think, (laughs) right? So if you're spending time teaching that child to write Chinese symbols as well as, uh, you know, the 26 uh, bare-ass letters of the English alphabet, that is much more time-consuming, Right. Yes, I agree. For the written, for the written part of Chinese, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. The third language uh,
1: would be something that use the same alphabet as English. So that would reduce that significantly. Um so for example, sure, studies. but I
0: mean, so learning how to speak a language without learning how to write it has limited utility. Certainly in the yeah. business world, it won't do you much good. Learning how to write a, a different language uh, is, is I don't know that it's a whole lot easier for kids than it is for adults. So there's kind of a myth, right, that, that kids' brains just absorb and they're just amazing little machines and so on. And they are, but uh, the studies that I've read seem to be pretty clear that it's not... Uh, it's not harder to learn things when you get older, like if you start learning piano or whatever. It's not harder. It, what happens is we just have more competing interests and impulses and thoughts and demands and requirements and so on, and that sort of makes it feel harder. And also, of course, when you learn things as an adult, you know how far you are from being competent, right? I mean, you start doing chopsticks and playing scales, you know you're 10,000 hours away from being a truly amazing pianist, and so you tend to go like, ugh, forget it, (laughs) You know, I I learned three chords, that's a long way from Eric Clapton. And so you tend to get a little bit more demotivated, whereas kids don't know how bad they are at stuff, and each step forward is this big improvement. So um, I don't know. Again, I'm not trying to say, I mean, obviously my yes or no doesn't have any meaning, and I don't even have a yes or no. But I would definitely look into all of the literature uh, and try and figure out what is the best use of time, recognizing that everything you teach is something you're not teaching.
1: Right. Uh, just just to give you the rationale, I mean, I didn't really say, well, I gave you a little bit of clue at the rationale, but I myself, you know, have, for the past 10 years, have been living outside of the U.S. and Canada where I lived formerly and mostly in Asia. And having been to most of these countries and tried to get jobs, I'm a teacher, but I've tried to get jobs in other fields. And the biggest stumbling block to getting those jobs was language skills. So the idea is to give our future children you know, a leg up in terms of being able to work in a multitude of countries and not just be limited to the one skill set they learn in whatever skill, that, you know, whatever job profession they have, but having the language You know, give them a a big leg up in that respect, because, you know, English is the, you know, the language of the world, but not enough so that they can get by in in all countries using English. And I know that from first-hand
0: experience. Well, certainly for you, I mean, as an international man of mystery, I mean, having more languages is great. For me, I mean, what does it... What does it really matter? It doesn't matter to me that I can't speak other languages. I've got Google Translate if I need it and, you know, things like that if, if necessary. I mean, I think you can even take pictures of signs now and have them translated to your local language. So, I mean, of course, yeah, I mean, under certain conditions, uh, having other languages is, uh, is fantastic. But I also think, so let's say your kid knows three languages. They grow up and then they marry someone who only knows one language. And uh, what are they going to do? I mean, it seems like at least one of them is going to fall away. There's not many situations where you would need three. So, again, if, of course, if your kid becomes an internationally known master translator, then obviously, I mean, that would be a requirement. So uh, I just I would just caution you to, to really think about everything else that could be done with that time and if you all feel that it's the best use, then so on. But there are certain, I mean, there are many, many living conditions that uh, don't require uh, any access to, uh, to more than one one language. So uh, it's, just, it's just a thought. I mean, it, ideally, it's great. But just remember all of the hidden costs rather than the visible benefits. Well, everything has hidden costs, right? So it's a good sure. right to think about it.
1: Okay. Um, well, I, if you don't mind, we can talk about the next uh, question I have. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, I was thinking... Uh, Given your, your vast uh, research and knowledge and expertise on non-aggression, I was wondering if you've ever thought about or are in the process of writing up a kind of informal contract. What do I mean by that? I would like to have a a non-enforceable, except through guilt maybe, <laughs> contract with my future wife, my current girlfriend, and it's a contract of non-aggression with our future kids, and so the contract would cover many of the key points that you cover in your podcasts, um, such as uh, non-aggression in general, free play, breastfeeding, no daycare, et cetera, et cetera.
0: And then you would have this with your girlfriend? Yes, and it would, be, it would be
1: non-enforceable, non-binding. It would just be something that you could pull out and say, remember we talked about this? Let's try our best to, you know, to get back on path. So we both are in the same frame of mind, so we start the raising of our kids immediately from the perspective of following a certain set of rules that all, that all are around the key principles of raising kids in a non-aggressive way, critical thinking, et cetera. All the points you mentioned uh, during your talks about the topic.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. I mean, I certainly have occasionally referred to our marriage vows, you know, on the very few times where we get stuck in a conflict. We sort of go back to the vows and say, well, this is what we committed to and, and so on. That should be a deciding factor. A contract, of course, sounds a bit cold and impersonal and so on. I don't like to do contracts uh, in, in my personal relationships or in my business relationships because if I feel the need for a contract, then it's the wrong person. Uh, so in terms of like something you that, or something that is like, you know, if you feel the need to confine the other person's behavior, of course, if you have verbal commitments to these things, then you don't really need to write them down and refer to them. You can just refer to the principles, right? So if you have the non-aggression principle and so on, like I don't have something taped above my bed, like on the ceiling, of course, I have the funhouse mirror. So why would I need that? I have no place to put it. But I don't sort of have something taped that said, you know, be rational, be decisive, uh, be assertive, uh, be kind, uh, be just. You know, because I, I mean that's what I'm aiming for every day. So I sort of don't need to be reminded of that. And you know, I knew I knew a woman once who was trying to lose weight, and she taped the picture of a, a picture of a skinny woman on her fridge. And basically she just chewed through it to get to the ice cream one day. It didn't really do too much uh, because she hadn't dealt with the self-knowledge issues that are usually the basis of gaining weight or the lack of self-knowledge issues. So I think it's great. I mean, to, to have those principles, to talk over those principles with your partner, I think is, is fantastic. You can write them down and so on. I really don't think that that's, a contract. Like, I've never had a contract with anyone I've done business with through FDR uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, I just, if I sort of feel the need for one, then I don't really want to do business with, with that person. I mean, contracts are tricky, right? Because if the person has integrity, you don't need a contract. And if the person doesn't have integrity, the contract isn't going to do you much good. They'll just find some way around it, or you can't enforce it without spending a huge amount of money on courts and so on. So uh, I, again, in the future, I don't think contracts are going to be a very uh, a very big deal because, uh, you know, in the future when people are raised well, they'll just have the, uh, the natural integrity that comes from being raised by virtuous people who themselves have integrity. So I don't think contracts are going to be a big deal in the future. I think it's great to have reference to values in relationships. Uh, it may be even worthwhile writing them down. But contract sounds a little bit like you have to shake it in someone's face when they're going contrary to it. And that means that they don't agree with it fundamentally. Like if you agree with something fundamentally, all you need to be, all that needs to happen is you need to be reminded of that, right? Uh, You know, you need to be reminded of that. And And a contract sounds just a bit more like it's something to be Shaken in someone's face, or enforced, rather than, hey, remember we were going to raise our children peacefully, and therefore no raised voices, no punishment, no hitting, uh, and so on. And so, if your wife starts, well, your girlfriend starts raising her voice, then all you have to say is, remember that. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, of course, you know, I completely forgot. Uh, So I think that's uh, uh, the important thing is to just get fundamental agreement on the values. Like first and foremost, a fundamental agreement on the values. If you have that, then you just have to, and the values are pretty simple, then you just have to remind the person of that. And if you fear that they may slip out of that, and certainly the Chinese culture has no history of peaceful parenting that that I'm aware of. Uh, And so uh, if you feel that there's going to be significant barriers to maintaining this in your relationship, then I would continue to have the conversations around the values and then you'll know when your partner is really embodying those values and accepts those values. And then she'll slip like we all do and need to be reminded. But that, that, I would really focus on the conversations more than the paperwork, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, I, I, I wasn't trying to make it formal. I, I tried to express that it was going to be informal. But like you said, maybe... Having it written down on paper would be a bit too a bit too much, but regardless, aside from just the general values which I agree with, you know, I could use kind of verbal reminders. When when I when I first brought up the, con- the more specific concepts of you know the research, there's a lot of evidence in the research that you you've mentioned and linked to that you know the children should be breastfed at least for the first two years of life, and they shouldn't go to daycare at least for the first four or five years of life. These kind of concepts are just so kind of, they shouldn't be, but they're so revolutionary to people who are, you know, trained from their parents and their, and their parents, you know, to go on, to go on the artificial, uh, artificial breast stuff and, and, you know, send them to daycare and all this kind of stuff. So she can say, yes, it's a good in principle. And then when it comes down to it, come up with all kinds of excuses why she can't do it and it's not practical and blah, blah, blah. So I'm just kind of trying to prevent those difficult situations from arising, uh, if and when they do,
0: well, but I mean, if you said, if you said to your wife, we should feed uh, the the child Coca Cola instead of milk because Coca Cola is cheaper than milk, what would she say?
1: Well, she probably would realize that that's ridiculous.
0: Well, she'd say, well, no, you can't, you can't do that. Like you, yeah, okay. you simply cannot do that. I mean, you can't quote price. Uh, And then give the child something that is nutritionally completely deficient and full of all kinds of chemicals and sugar and fructose, glucose and all that kind of stuff. So that it simply wouldn't be an option, right? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to, well, it's more convenient to put your kids in daycare. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by convenient, (laughs) Right I mean if you've, if you're really busy one day, then sure, dropping your kids off at a daycare will allow you to get some stuff done for sure, at, at what cost, down the road, right? So your kid probably prefers you know sugar to vegetables, obviously, right, and we're programmed that way because we all needed fruit uh, as uh, evolving bipeds, and fruit is sweet, and we and those who had, were drawn towards fruit. And concentrated energy like honey and sugarcane, and so on did very well. So, sure, it's, it's efficient, but, you know, le- less conflict to give your kid sugar all the time. But we all know we can't do that because it can cause all these problems down the road. And it's the same thing with the brain as it is with the body, right? So, yeah, it's, you know, it's convenient and it's easier in, in, in certain situations, in certain moments to, you know, fire a kid in a cannon over the wall into the daycare and come pick them up eight hours later for sure. It's just that daycare is to the brain as Coca Cola is to the body. You just—it's—it's just—it's not an option because it's just so terrible. Like in Canada, they just—and I, I mean, I know you know all of this stuff, so I'm more reading reading this for others who don't know as much about these topics because you say, "Well, daycare is is bad," and and so on. Well. I've got a presentation coming up uh, on the truth about daycare. I mean, just before we get there, let me see if I can dig up what I wanted to read about daycare because this just came out in Canada. I mean, I'm still <laughs> idiotic enough to be shocked by this stuff, but nonetheless, there it is. Let me see if I can find it. Just trying to hold up. That's not it. I don't know if I've got it handy. Oh, maybe it's over here. Do 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 See, this is a professional show. Look at this, me flipping pages all over the place. Oh yeah, this is from Maclean's magazine. Uh, what's the date on this? Yeah, the standard there in Canada, supposedly. Yeah, I mean, this is the Canadian version of Time. Uh, I just have a date on it. It's Canada's best schools, twenty fourteen, and the uh, article is entitled "Why full full day kindergarten is failing our children." I won't get into the details. Um, uh, five-year-olds in British Columbia, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island all attend full-day kindergarten. Ontario is currently, which is where I live, in the fourth year of a five-year rollout for full-day junior and senior kindergarten, meaning kids as young as three attend school all day, five days a week in those provinces without full-time daycare programs. Demands are heard regularly, I guess, for for this. Uh, This September, on the first day of the school year, the Ontario government claimed conclusive evidence of full-day kindergartens advantages was finally at hand thanks to a pair of academic studies it commissioned. Quote, in every area, in every area, students improved their readiness for grade one and accelerated their development, a provincial news release declared. Education Minister Liz Sandals called the results, which tracked students in both half- and full-day kindergartens over two years, nothing short of incredible This news was immediately hailed by supporters of the concept. Charles Pascal, the driving force behind Ontario's full-day program, said, it shows the program is truly a life-changer. In a front-page study, the Globe and Mail, Scumbags and United, dubbed it a landmark study. And yet there was no study to read, landmark or otherwise. The hype and excitement came from a few bullet points selectively released by the province. The actual reports were nowhere to be seen. The reason for this reticence is now apparent. With the complete reports finally available online, it appears that Ontario's $1.5 billion-a-year full-day kindergarten experiment is a grave disappointment from both pedagogical and financial perspectives. And uh, you can look this uh, article up. But uh, basically, uh, kids, a lot of kids have done worse with full-day early learning kindergarten. The biggest failings were in the categories of emotional maturity, communication skills, and general knowledge. And kids with special education needs do particularly bad, badly uh, in this uh, situation, and uh, you can sort of go on to read it. I mean, I'm still shocked that the government would lie to this degree and claim that something is successful when it's obviously a disaster. At least they don't do that with Obamacare, this website from hell, right, which is a pretty easy thing to build, right? It doesn't actually do any e-commerce. It doesn't actually, uh, it just allows you to compare plans and apply. It's actually pretty simple. Uh, system. But anyway, uh, so, yeah, so it's, it, so if you get that, right, that this is just bad for your children's brains, bad for their emotional development, then you would no more put your kids in daycare than you would, you know, allow them to watch Bruce Willis films for eight hours a day. It's just, just not on the table, right? And and so you don't need all that to to get that. So go ahead. Well, for me, you know, you, you don't have to, like you
1: said before, you don't have to convince me. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's logical and obvious. I don't even need the research to tell me that. But, the problem is, is that, you know, I am, you know, the 1% in that respect, you know, and my girlfriend, you know, she's growing up in an environment where there's a lot of pressure to conform and for her to read such, and that's one problem. And the second problem is for her to read such high level writing. I mean, her English is not fluent like mine. It's her second language. So trying to get it across to her in a simple way as possible, but still backed up by evidence, that's, that's a real challenge. And, uh I don't know what you can suggest
0: for that. Daycare bad. I mean, yeah, okay. you know, she got to trust like, you, right? Well. I mean, I get, I get that there's not a lot of this kind of literature in communist China, <laughs> of <laughs> course, right? And the reason, of course, why the government loves daycare is it gets to tax the women who put their kids in daycare and go to work, and it gets to tax the daycare workers, and it gets unions for the daycare workers that give campaign contributions to the politicians. I mean, the fact that it crushes the brains and souls of children is sort of irrelevant because it ups political politicians power so i mean she's just gotta i mean you can explain it to her as you like but the fundamental thing is she just needs to trust you right yeah i hope so okay. well no see hope hope is hope well, is not a strategy right uh, <laughs> cross yeah. your fingers is not a it's not a plan right you said that so you ha- need to have this stuff squared away before you before you get mad before you settle yes. before you have kids absolutely you have to have this stuff squared away right
1: I agree with you hundred percent, and that's the reason I brought up the conversation, for sure.
0: Well, no, but you're saying hope so, right?
1: Well, no, no, no. That was just kind of like a
0: how do you say it? like an expression. I mean, I, I, it's not just hope. Well, it's uh, it's an expression. I'm going to take. I'd rather err on the side of of caution than assume you were just making a a joke or, or right. So the don't hope so, right? You you need to have her commitment uh, to this. Uh, before, before you have kids with her. I mean, you just need to, I mean, otherwise it is, um, I mean, in the future, they will simply look upon this stuff as child abuse. I mean, child abuse is something that that changes and so on. Like they'll look on spanking as child abuse. Uh, they'll look on a uh, government run daycares as abusive towards children um, in terms of the inevitable neglect that comes. And I've worked in these institutions, I know more, more than most. So, you know, you just have to have a commitment to do that, which is best, for your child and you have to look at the science and you have to look at the history of how human beings developed and and what children need and the science is very clear there's there's no substitute for uh, at-home consistent uh, parenting from one or hopefully both parents there's just nothing that 's better for children i mean breastfeed breastfeeding is far better for children uh being at home with the parent is far better for children, and you don't have to have kids, but if you do have kids, you 've automatically entered yourself into the category or the contract I guess you could say of you have to do what is best for them, and science uh, is 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 very clear about what is best for them. you know politics and propaganda obviously is completely the opposite but You know, the politics and propaganda is like, hey, do you value your freedom? Thank a veteran, right? And uh, so uh, I think you just need to get this. Keep going over the facts. Keep going over the statistics. You know, pause and and explain, pause and explain. And once she's fully on board, then uh, all you'll need is a reminder, right? Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks. Well, thank you you very much. Great questions. I I appreciate you bringing them up. Okay. Take care, Stefan. Bye-bye. Thanks, man.
2: All right, coming up next via phone is Chris. Hello. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi,
0: you got a question?
3: Uh, I have, actually, I have a bunch of questions. Um, and... Pick
0: your most important one first, just in case it takes a while.
3: I will. Um, I, I just want to give you a little bit of background on myself. Um, I am, like I said, I'm running a startup. Uh, a startup. Uh, I'm an accountant. I'm a blind competitive athlete. And my philosophy tends to lean toward anarcho-primitivism, which is the main reason I called you. Um, I have been unable to find stuff uh, on YouTube or otherwise from you about anarcho-primitivism. And actually, to begin, if you could just give me your thoughts on that philosophy.
0: Well, I don't think there's any thoughts to give uh, on on a philosophy that respects the non-aggression principle and property rights. I mean if if people want to homestead some land and and live in caves and consume as few resources as humanly possible I think that's fine I mean I may have some questions about the suitability of that for children but um uh, that's you know obviously it's not uh, it's not horrendous as long as the kids get you know medical attention and so on when necessary which of course requires some pretty modern technology so if people Want, like this is a form of aesthetics. It's not really a form of ethics. As long as you're not violating the non-aggression principle and property rights, you know, do, do what you will. And, um, and and if you feel that the philosophy is, is of value to people, uh, then you can go and make the case for that philosophy. Like I don't advocate throwing spanking parents into jail. Uh, I just try to make the case as clearly as possible for what needs to be done for the world to be better. Uh, With the positive consequences of having a better relationship with your children and the negative consequences, which is that if uh, in 10 years from now everybody believes or accepts that it's abusive – then you're going to have uh, problems with your adult relationship with your kids. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you, you know, if you want to live that way, it's not my choice. If you want to live that way, fantastic. If you want to make the case for it, I think that's fantastic too. Uh, but um, obviously, it can't be something that's enforced on everyone because then that's a violation of the non-aggression principle. Does that does that help at least give some somewhat of my perspective?
3: Yeah. Um, now I have some follow-ups. Um, it's it's a non a non-initiation of force applicable to. Just humans. I had a discussion with Lark and Rose. I'm sure you know who that is. Yeah. Um, and he, that's what he told me. The non it's non aggression is only applicable to people.
0: Well, I you know it's it's tough. It's a tough call, and it's not. I don't think it's as black and white. So there's the non aggression principle, and then there's the NSP, the NAP, and NSP. NSP is non sadistic principle, which is you know torturing animals is is bad. And because it's, it's completely unnecessary suffering that you're inflicting on a sentient creature, you know, not a creature that's able to abstractly reason, uh, use complex language, uh, understand contract, reciprocity, philosophy, and so on. But uh, in a free society, uh, it would not be acceptable, as it is not acceptable now, to, to torture uh, animals. And um, I mean, uh, very briefly, I've touched on this a, a number of times before. Very briefly, uh, I I myself and mostly vegetarian, I'll have meat maybe once uh, every month or two. And I think that we should use, eat a lot less meat. Uh, I think in general it's bad for the planet. It's, it's often bad for our bodies. And so I think we should eat a lot less meat. Uh, and the best way to do that is to stop giving all these crazy subsidies to meat farmers, right? Because, I mean, as you know, it takes – Seven times the amount of energy and crops and water to produce a pound of meat than it does to do, produce a pound of vegetables. And so why isn't meat roughly seven times more expensive? Well, because voters like meat and therefore the government will give all these, these crazy subsidies and so on. So let meat reflect its real costs and its consumption will go down uh, enormously and uh i i don't believe in uh you know obviously cruelty towards animals and so on i'm not willing to shoot someone who wants to eat a burger i don't think that's reasonable uh, but i also would would have significant issues with somebody who was torturing uh, animals i would consider that to be reprehensible and of course on the part of a children uh, on the part of a child uh, like you know torturing animals bedwetting and and arson uh, the holy unholy trifecta of sociopathy so uh, it would be a significant cause of concern if a child was Uh, expressing that preference Uh, so i I think that the non-aggression principle uh, applies to to people but i think the non-sadistic principle would apply to obviously to people and and to animals as well
3: okay so now to follow up with that um this past i believe last week the black rhino went extinct and that's largely due to its uh people poaching it and now, this is just theoretical, obviously. Say someone, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming under the capitalist model, um, people can own animals. I don't think that's
0: that's aggressive, so to speak. Now, if someone well, owns the but, last- Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. But the black rhino, as far as I understand it, went extinct because of a deficiency of philosophy, right? Because people believe that the powdered horn is uh, a, 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 um, uh, an anti-erectile dysfunction, Right. It's, it's a Viagra kind of thing. Right. That if you powder the horn, there's something to do with tiger blood as well, that, that they, people believe it has these restorative properties. And it's basically like you might as well be mixing potions in oblivion as far as the effect on reality goes. But it's people's irrational thinking process that produced the, the demand for a lot of these creatures that that go extinct it's because in the double blind experiment you'd find out that this stuff is worse than useless because it's actually preventing you from finding a more productive solution to to erectile dysfunction but uh, as far as i understand it it's, it's irrational unscientific mystical thinking that produced the demand that, that killed off these beasts
3: i i agree but all right say just i um, just theoretically speaking if someone owned the last black rhino and Under capitalism, someone came up and said, "I'll give you ten million dollars to shoot this because I want its head on my wall or whatever." And the and the person agreed. Wouldn't that be okay? Uh, I mean, that that's not it's not torturing the animal; it's a quick death. That's that would wouldn't that be okay under a capitalist model?
0: I mean, I don't know what you mean by okay. I, I'm not sure what right. not you okay. mean. Would, uh, would, be... would you shoot? Would you shoot someone for doing that? No. No but, no no but, I mean, but if, there's if so no many ways paid. to solve that right no, nobody's going to pay ten million dollars for the last i mean there's and and even if they did i mean there 's lots of people who care a lot more like if you can get fifty million people to each contribute a dollar then you 've outbid the capitalist and you've, you've you've kept it alive uh and so on right so uh, you know it, it, you can't you can 't sort of uh, there's these artificial scenarios i 'm sorry it 's not, not your fault they just they kind of get on my nerves because. It is not a capitalist situation that has produced The Last Black Rhino, right? The Last Black Rhino lives in Africa. Africa is a godforsaken swamp of tyranny, dictatorship, and statism. And, and even in the case of Somalia, you know, rank mysticism and superstition. So the, the, it is not a capitalist environment at all in, um, uh, in Africa in any way, shape, or form, just as it is not throughout the world, but in Africa in particular – uh, it's just a complete mess of a continent from an economic standpoint. Um, the parks are owned by governments. There's massive bribery going on, corruption, foreign aid, food dumping from first world agricultural markets, destroying local economies, child soldiers, wars, genocides, uh, disease. I mean, uh, HIV, as you know, and AIDS rampant throughout Africa. So this is not – you can't suddenly say, OK, well, now we're going to take a free market example that is coming out of this complete hell fest. Of of statism, Uh, you you just you cannot slap free market on at the end and say, well, now we have a free market situation.
3: Okay, that's that's totally fair. Um, All right, so next, um, I'd like to discuss about the free market. um, Something maybe you've addressed it before, but I haven't been able to find it. Is advertising? Um, People can spend, you know, it's it's non-aggression. People can spend whatever they want on trying to convince people to buy things. And wouldn't this, wouldn't this, I mean, if, if, uh, it's, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of religion. Like it convinced rows of people that nonsense is real. So since that, since you're not necessarily harming someone by advertising them, I mean, what, basically, where do you draw the line? Like if tobacco people can advertise and, and, uh, to their products, which are obviously known to be bad and people are still doing them, is that okay? I mean, it would—it would seem like it would seem like if enough—if a person advertised enough and cornered the market, you would have somewhat of a consolidation of power. Am I incorrect?
0: So your issue is with false statements being made to people that are dangerous to their health. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, advertising is just—it's propaganda. And to no, but to sorry, why—why why are you focusing on advertising rather than politics? I mean, it because- seems like you're missing you 're missing the, the the target right it's like uh, you know it's like <laughs> there's a tiger running at you and then there 's a bumblebee on a tree a mile away, and you're taking your gun and aiming at the bumblebee a mile away right i mean if you want to look at stuff that 's bad for your health, i mean the propaganda for war uh, you know got uh, hundreds of millions of people killed in the last century uh, propaganda for patriotism you know i mean You know what kind of jeans you should wear uh, doesn't doesn't it's not even the same moral category uh, as what the government does in terms of propaganda and also what religion does in terms of propaganda. You know, telling uh, kids that they're literally going to burn in hell for uh, having sexual thoughts or being selfish or disobeying their parents and stuff like that. So with 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 patri with statism and and with religion that have a coercive monopoly over uh, children certainly the state does in terms of public schools and to some degree uh, uh, parents uh, particularly superstitious and uh, uh, aggressive parents have a violent monopoly over their children's mindsets because the children can't go anywhere Whereas advertising, you just turn it off and you just ignore it. So that's sort of the one thing. I think that by focusing on advertising, you're you know aiming at the bumblebee rather than the tiger. And the second thing is, of course, the best cure for advertising is critical thinking. And neither religion nor the state have any vested interest. Quite the opposite, right? They have no vested interest in, in teaching true philosophical critical thinking because that would destroy the entire source of their power, which is collectivism, herd mentality, irrationality and, and terror. And so in a free society, you know, kids are raised uh, with critical thinking, they're raised skeptically, and so they're going to be much less susceptible to emotionally manipulative advertising. I mean, so an advertising which is saying, you know, this is going to give you some benefits, right? I mean, whatever, right? Uh, Then I think that's obviously advertising is just information, and most people prefer advertising to paying for things because you can get a bunch of stuff ad free you just have to sort of pay extra for it except for this show which is donation based fdrurl.com forward slash donate but uh, yeah so um, now as far as tobacco goes and all that well um, there was of course some lack of knowledge about it early on Uh, tobacco companies of course were not keen on on pointing all of this stuff out for reasons that are completely obvious but tobacco is a manifestation of child abuse nothing more nothing less right so Kids grow up with a deficiency of happy joy juice uh, the dopamine uh, dopamine receptors in their brain, and uh, things like cocaine and and uh, uh, tobacco uh, provide these receptors and so people like addiction starts because people don't realize how unhappy they were until they had this drug, right? So most people start at a happiness level of 100 and they smoke and they go to a happiness level of 110, 120, and then they go back down to 100 and it's like, okay, well, that's fine. They don't get addicted. But if you have a happiness of like 50 and then you smoke and you go to 89 to 100, you're like, oh my God, this is what normal feels like. I've never felt this before. And then when you crash back down to 50, you feel miserable and then you are, you know, really conscious of how miserable you were. Uh, and then you want to get back to normal again. And that's because you had a traumatic childhood, which screwed up your brain chemistry. So, uh, you know, again, these things, so many of these things are solved by, you know, peaceful, happy parenting, producing critical thinkers who aren't going to be susceptible to these crazy brain addictions and so on. Uh, that would be uh, my suggestion. Uh, that's going to fundamentally change uh, the, the face of advertising. But again, I mean, it's, it's you know, focus on the tiger.
3: Okay, I, uh, some of these points I actually uh, I took out of the Zeitgeist movies. Do you mind if I make a couple comments on that? On what? On the Zeitgeist movement. I, have, I, I just have a few points, uh, not points, but statements, basically, that I haven't heard elsewhere, and I was looking sure. for your input. Okay. Um, I watched the debate, and I actually have watched all the content between you and Peter Joseph, and uh, as far as the debate goes, the, the one that you and he and you had, um, I thought he did actually okay. And the reason for that is because I speak Peter Joseph. Um, you mentioned the word salad. And a lot of that language, uh, when, you, when you watch the movies, um, I've watched all three of them a bunch of times. And I used to believe in that, uh, that resource-based economy until I thought about it and read the FAQ the uh, the Venus Project, and I realized how, first of all, it's 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 a consolidation of power. That's that's all it is. Um, they can deny that all they want, but it's a consolidation of power. But my biggest issue with it, that I haven't heard anywhere else, and and I'd like your input, is it's coming from an anarcho-primitivist perspective. It's not natural. Um, the, their whole thing is, well, we want to be in line with nature and do this and that and blah blah blah. But nowhere in nature are there uh, Supercomputer cities, and also the, some of the some of the issues that they put forward. Um, they want to put giant turbines to control Gulf streams. They want to put up windmills that will, you know, kill lots of birds. A lot of birds die in cities from smashing into the windows and things like that. This is not natural. I mean, that that that's not. It, it just it boggles my mind that nobody has thought about that. And thought about what? Has thought about the the enormous destruction that's going to go on in nature if that plan ever came to fruition the uh the resource based economy because they say well we 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 restructure the surface of the earth and it would it, it would like i said just one example is one of their one of their uh one one thing they put forward is they would want to put a giant turbine to control the gulf stream which would
0: yeah <laughs> sorry i think it's great uh to me when i hear this stuff it's like if we can just get one more unicorn, everything will be perfect. It's the one more unicorn philosophy, uh, which I just find kind of laughable. Of course, like what they call the green economy is uh, – I, I mean, it's just nonsense. I mean, it's, it's completely – I mean, the, the Prius is terribly environmentally destructive, particularly because they've got to ship all their batteries over from Japan. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, wind turbines are ridiculously inefficient, take up a lot of space. And of course, how do you build a, tur- a wind turbine? Well, you get all of the stuff that's mixed together, powered by factories, powered by fossil fuels and, and all that kind of stuff, and then you just slaughter birds by the billions. Uh, and remember, the environmental movement started out of Rachel Carson's silent spring. Concern for the birds was number one, and now it's just like, well, yeah, we'll sacrifice the birds to the imaginary wind gods of effective turbine power. And so, I mean, it's all nonsense. And, I mean, this supercomputer stuff, that you know, the people who – who want to run this stuff, they're they're not, I've I've not met a computer programmer who's in the movement. And it's like, if you've got a magic solution called giant computers, shouldn't you actually have someone in there who knows something about computers? I mean, computers are not objective. (laughs) They're not like impartial. They're not like uncorruptible Greek gods of, of rational resource allocation. They just do what you tell them to. They're as subjective as the people who program them. Uh, and then saying, well, it's going to be open source, that doesn't solve the question. A computer has to decide to do something with a resource. And having it be open source doesn't mean anything because it's still only going to do what people tell it to do and either everyone is going to tell it to do exactly the same thing, which is completely impossible, or people are going to tell it to do contradictory things, in which case it's not going to be able to do anything until those contradictions are resolved. So it's just, you know, take take a couple of computer science classes if you believe that giant... Mommy, Marxist robots are going to run your city, you know into the gates of paradise. You know, take a couple of computer science courses. It's really uh, kind of important. If this is the keystone of the solution to all the world's problems, then surely a couple of night courses wouldn't do you any harm. But uh, it seems <laughs> there's just no computer science people. And there's a reason for that, right? Because computer science people can see through all that nonsense. And of course, if you were a computer science expert uh, in the Venus a project then you would uh, be required to build a simulation of what it is that was occurring and it would very quickly be shown that the simulation would be impossible so uh, anyway i just sort of wanted to to point that out i think it is it's tragic the degree to which uh, people's um, frankly infantile fantasies get drawn into the stuff that just has zero chance of working but serves i guess deep seated emotional needs uh, in the moment
3: yeah, and actually, as an aside, I don't want to get into this now, but I scored a seven on the ACE test. And um, your theory about uh, the, the the type of childhood that would attract a person to the Zeitgeist movement was dead on. So, um,
0: now, so should we talk about your anarcho primitivism then? <laughs>
3: not, not, not at this at this moment. I actually would really like to talk about that, but I'm not ready for that conversation yet. Sure. Um, but the the, the next. My next thing about the the Zeitgeist movement is, and and I swear I, I have I have a lot of respect for Peter Joseph. I mean he's he's got the anarcho part right, but I, I think because I've listened to this man debate and talk to people and um, and especially the vicious follow up that he had
0: toward you. Um, oh, is that, movement, is that the one where he you know, called me a con artist and a piece of shit and stuff bag, like that? Yeah. No no you 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 may have you may have you, sorry you may have misunderstood that because you see Peter Joseph is as he says right there on his website is entirely dedicated to the principles of nonviolent communication yeah so whatever <laughs> tricks your ears were playing on you <laughs> it's just really important to to focus on the fact that this uh, it, unfortunately it was simply going through your capitalist bourgeois filter you heard douchebag piece of shit con man – but clearly he is dedicated to nonviolent communication, and therefore you must be mistaken. Because, of course, if someone is dedicated to nonviolent communication and then pours out torrents of verbal abuse when contradicted, uh, then that would not even be remotely a tiny shred of the level of integrity that would be needed to run, say, a grocery store, let alone the whole world.
3: Well, you know, as I said in the beginning, I'm actually blind. But my ears work very well. I did hear all that. So –
0: Okay, well, I, you know, then you and I must be sharing the same delusional bourgeoisie uh, fantasy of non-recurring continuum smidges, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so go ahead.
3: So but my, my whole, my whole uh, my, the purpose of me bringing that up is I think the movement needs to get somebody – and if anyone's listening, please take this seriously. Get someone besides Peter Joseph to be the spokesperson. He's just not a likable guy, and I, he gets very frustrated when he has to repeat his points to people – and I'm sorry to say, but that that <laughs> no, is part of no, change. No, I'm
0: not going to give you that. He look. I repeat my points to people. Repeating your points to people does is not what gets you frustrated. It's not. It's not because you're saying it's causal, and and I get this story right. The, well, you see, he's so brilliant, and he just he really wants other people to get it, and they don't get it because they don't share his giant brain, and therefore he gets frustrated. No. no, I mean, that's not what if you're an said. educator, no, no, no. But but if you're an educator, no, you said he gets frustrated because he has to repeat himself. That's not why he gets frustrated. Okay. Because look, it's like it's like saying if you're a grade three teacher, and it's like you get a new class and you get frustrated because it's like, well, I already taught this stuff before, right? And it's like, but not to these kids, right? <laughs> They're new. <laughs> so yeah, i frustrated. No, that's another reason. Of course you have to repeat yourself when you're talking to new people. Of course you do. Every time I talk to somebody who's not been exposed to philosophy, who's not been exposed to strong atheism, who's not been exposed to anarchism, I have to start from the very beginning. Of course I do because I actually have a pretty good habit of processing reality. And the reality is that when you're talking to someone new, they don't know what you're talking about. And if you don't explain something in a way that other people understand, doesn't mean that they agree. But if you don't find a way to explain something in a way that other people understand, that's your fault. That's yeah. your fault. You cannot blame the recipients of complex information for their failure to understand it. That's your job to fix. That's your job to get better at. Does that sort of make sense?
3: Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, also, the, uh, the claim that there's enough for everyone. And also that the, the person, for the resource-based economy, there's enough on Earth for everyone living right now. And I wonder, uh, because one of the things that um, the Venus Project puts forward is that even the wealthy can have a higher standard of living than they do now. But in the next breath, or the breath before, they they peddle out studies about how um, wealthy people uh, are, are sociopaths and whatever. So I, I don't see that as, that, that doesn't work for me. I mean, you want to give people, everyone, a high standard of living, and then you claim that a high standard of living gives people sociopathy. Am I, am I
0: missing something? No. I mean, there is – I mean, at a very sort of basic evil, biological evolutionary level, men in particular are trained or they have an innate desire to resent high-status males, Right? We, we we have an innate desire to dislike high status males. Well, it's it's you know it's it's ambivalence really. I mean, we want to be their friends, but at the same time, we don't like that they have all the money and therefore the successful mating opportunities with with models, right? I mean, everyone who every every movie actor who walks down the red carpet uh, for the Oscars has a thin beautiful woman on his arm, right? Mm -hmm. you're not going to see a fat, ugly woman on George Clooney's arm. It's just not going to happen. You're going to see, like, that impossible spider princess, (laughs) Stacey Keebler elf or something like that. And so we are, as males, we have a natural reaction of resentment towards the alpha males. Of course we do. And it's the same way that women have both a desire for and... Uh, a resentment of beautiful women women like i remember sitting in a car years and years ago with a woman who's a friend of mine and a friend of hers and there was some woman walking down the street outside the car and she had like short skirt on and she had like a pretty revealing top on and all that she was just jiggling all over the place right it was like watching a <laughs> jello come out of a paint shaker but good you know sexy and they both just immediately said bitch <laughs> you know just under their breath involuntarily because they you know they knew they couldn't compete with that in terms of just sexual allure i mean they were attractive women but not that you know i mean this was like someone had just uh, you know brought a uh, <laughs> a playboy tire cover to life right and so there's this natural resentment that men have towards the alpha males and it's good it means that you get that the alpha males have something that you want. And that is what drives you to surmount the beta, the zeta, and try to strive for Alphaville, as the 80s band was called, right? You want to get to Alphaville, and therefore you resent the people who are already there. And that resentment tells you that they have something that you want, and that's supposed to drive your ambition. Like I started as a total non entity, uh, you know, in sort of social terms. You know, I came from, as the youngest sibling of a broadcast single mom household in a trashy district, uh, you know, with completely no money and, and all that. And, you know, obviously I'm <laughs> aiming for ultimate alpha male philosopher status. And so the resentment that we all have towards the successful is, is entirely natural. And it also comes of course, from the time when everything was a zero sum game, right? So if some guy has 50 coconuts then there's a fixed amount of coconuts around the village right so if some guy has like 50 coconuts then there's damn well less coconuts for you right and if there are like 30 women in the village if one guy has 10 women then there's just that fewer women left for you so to speak right and so we kind of evolved to look at people who have a lot and to feel like they were stealing from us because you know a lot of times in history they kind of were You know, the king's castle is built on the bones of the the serfs, right? Like the more he has, the less they have. And of course, you know, capitalism is like 200 years old. There's just no way it's had any effect on our biological drivers, on our emotional drivers at a very deep level. It it just hasn't occurred. So we see rich people and, you know, without education, without knowledge, of course we're going to look at them and say, well, they're rich because I'm broke and I resent them. And so this, this politics of resentment is one of, the, is one of the, you know, it's reason, you know, it's, I think our good friend Con Berner on YouTube said it's reason 12,622 as to why democracy can't work. Because demagogues, when they say to men, uh, in particular, some women, but when they say to men, that alpha male is rich because you're poor. He's taken from you. I mean, that really hooks into a very primitive and resentful and aggressive part of us. But it's also kind of like a cowardly part, because a lot of the Zeta males just sit around grumbling about the alpha male, but they they don't have usually the strength or the resolution to actually attack him. But through the government, they can do that, right? They can take stuff away from the alpha male and give it to themselves, thus redistributing the resources that they need to attract a mate. And again, we're just sort of talking about a base of the brain, ape-like biological sense. So the fact that there's an ambivalent relationship in the zeitgeist movement towards the wealthy, is uh is natural, you know? We are supposed to be annoyed by wealth. Most times, it was stealing from us, and we are supposed to be annoyed by someone who's gathered a lot of resources because that's what nature is telling us to do too. And we, you know, without the resentment of somebody else getting it, what would drive us to to pursue it? Anyway, does that make any sense? Yeah. Um,
3: do me a favor too. When it, when it gets to time, whenever that is, because I've got a lot more stuff. Just give me a two minute warning, and I'll wrap it up.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I, we got some more callers. So if you can give me uh, one more question, that'd be great.
3: Okay, well, I'm gonna make. I'm just gonna say one thing, and I'll give you my last question. Um, uh, one of your speech patterns. I watched your World Wars videos, and you use the word "we" a lot. We started World Wars. We invaded this. And I just wanted to point that out because it, it's generally uh, a. Uh, it's like you're you're identifying with your oppressors. You know what I mean? I mean it's subtle. Mm. Yeah because I'd actually try to cut that out as much as possible because we aren't doing any of that crap. I would never want to be identified
0: with that. So um, the last no, I think, I think that's I think that's a good point. Did, did you ping me on Facebook or Skype about that? Because somebody said, you're using that word too much, and they never actually said which word it was. Was that you? No. Okay. Well, maybe it's the same word. Okay, and I appreciate that. It's great feedback. I will I will definitely work on that. That's uh, it, It's a uh, shorthand that is probably more misdirection than anything else so I appreciate that feedback that's very good
3: okay and this the last question I'll give you um, is um, basically what 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 gives people the right to uh, science seems to give people the the, uh, the 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 power to control everything so to speak um and what what gives us the right I mean why why I don't know. I should have thought this through more. But what? It's like we're we're all powerful. It almost becomes a religion. You know, you have your Dawkins, and you have your Hawking, and you have your whatever, and it becomes okay. We can manipulate atoms. We can rip open wormholes. We can do this and that. And and really, if you think about it, is the Earth better now because of science, or is it not?
0: Well, I I don't know about how we would even measure that, um, what what would better mean. I'm I'm glad that the world is more friendly to keeping me alive than it was, say, in the Middle Ages. So I'm glad that, you know, when I got cancer, that there was treatments that kept me alive. That's, that's science. Now, but the stuff that you're talking all, all about is very interesting because there's science and then there's statism, right? You don't want to mistake statism for science. In the same way that you don't want to mistake some rent-seeking lobbying state privilege seeking semi-fascistic corporate wannabe for the free market right the free market is the free market and it's still still vestiges of it you and i are engaged in that at the moment uh, this sort of free exchange of ideas is the free market you know it's only incidentally about money <laughs> mostly about uh, love and body fluids and <laughs> ideas and, and and music and so on but you don't want to confuse The free market with, say, pharmaceutical company profits. And I was just talking about this with uh, uh, Steph Kinsella earlier tonight. Right. So, you you know, the the, the pharmaceutical companies lobby the government to make sure that the government can't barter for lower prices through Medicaid. And they get extensions of patents and they restrict competition and they also sell a huge amount of incredibly damaging drugs through – uh, the uh, the government uh, in terms of uh, ADHD drugs and and uh, other SSRIs and psychotropic drugs and so on, and you know as far as that goes, you know we were talking earlier about tobacco and stuff. I mean, tobacco is is bad and all that stuff, but at least tobacco is generally affecting mature lungs from people who have a choice. You know, the the amount of drugs that are basically forcibly inflicted on children or whose parents are bribed to drug them. You know, parents get extra money from a kid who has a disability and the, the easiest one to fake and invent is some is mental health disorder. And of course, schools get 400 bucks a year for every kid who's on this stuff and it's all paid for by the state. So there's profit in that stuff, but it's like evil. It's evil. You know, you, you never want to conflate sex and rape, like lovemaking and rape. I mean, it's the same mechanics, but it's the opposite, right? And it's too bad that we don't have a different word for profit that is achieved through state power, right? I mean, we have theft and we have charity, right? We have surgery and we have stabbing, <laughs> right? We have lovemaking and we have rape. We don't have two separate words for legitimate moral voluntary profits in the free market in exchange for mutual benefit in a non-coercive and non-corrupted environment, and, you know, selling metal to the Nazis so they can make Messerschmitt 109Es or something. And so we just, I mean, economists call it rent-seeking, but that's a, that's a shitty term because, you know, most people don't know what the hell it means. It just sounds like you've given up on ownership and you want to go rent something. So I, I wish we had a word. I don't know. Maybe we can, you know, some capitalism and stuff like that. But that's kind of more of a joke than a word. We don't have a good word for That And we don't have a good word for the difference between the iPad and the, like, burn super collider Mobius strip from hell that's going to eat the planet, right? And we don't have a different word for cell phone technology than we do for the Manhattan Project, right? So one is science that is paid for through violence to serve the needs and preferences of the sociopaths in power. And the other is to voluntarily serve voluntary consumers in an open exchange with competition. We just just need different words. So when you talk about science, I really think it's important to differentiate these two spheres. Because if you don't, you end up mixing the food in with the poison, then everything tastes like shit, right? Yeah. All right,
3: yeah, that makes sense.
0: And you and I are both against all that shitty state-serving science. Like, I mean, I loathe it with, with a passion. Uh, it, it, it steals, literally steals milk from the mouths of babes. Like, literally, I don't mean with this figurative. Literally, that shit steals mother's milk from the mouths of babes. Why? Because taxes are ridiculously high to pay, partly to pay for these scientific experiments. Because taxes are so high, a lot of people feel that both parents have to work, and so the mom can't breastfeed her kid. Right? These fucking scientists, these fucking fascist corporations, these fucking warmongers, these military industrial cluster fucks, these asshole academics are literally profiting from the ripping of mother's milk out of the mouths of babes. And, I mean, you know, Peter Joseph and I may have our differences, but he's working in a voluntary sphere, Right? He's not forcing anyone to do anything. And I respect that, if not much else. And so I sort of reserve, I try to aim at the tiger, not the bumblebee. And my contempt and my hatred is towards the people who justify and stuck off the bloody teats of state power and feed the children to the monstrous engine of fascism that is growing all around us. So you and I share the same hatred and contempt, I think, for the coercive aspects of society and uh, praise the voluntary ones
3: yeah it, it's a statistical fact that all um, breast milk in North America has dioxin in it and that that's, it's just disgusting
0: well could be well thank you very much for your comments and questions I, I really appreciate it and uh, yeah we'll talk about anarcho-primitivism uh, and your history sometime if that's of interest to you but I uh, really appreciate your call
2: thank you thank you All right, Jordan, you're up next today. Jordan, go ahead. Hi, Stefan.
0: Hello.
4: It's great to be on the show. Um, I'm an 18-year-old converted anarchist uh, this past summer. I started with Tom Wood's videos on Austrian economics, which eventually uh, led me to your YouTube channel and um, philosophy show. And I just want to thank you for opening my eyes to the beauty of philosophy.
0: Well, thank you. I also, you know, great respect to Tom Woods. That man's brain really gets around.
4: Oh, yeah. uh... He's incredible.
0: (laughs)
1: Yeah.
4: Um, So I have two topics uh, I'd like to discuss today. My first one is about the baby boomers. Um, I know you did a video calling them greedy, lazy, and uh, entitled, and I agree with everything you said. But I'd like to add a few adjectives and get your thoughts on them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, okay. Um, I'm sitting down, I'm, I'm braced. I'm in the Abe Lincoln position. I'm in the Blaupunk stereo blast my cheeks off uh, position. Go for it. <laughs>
4: um, so I find from my personal, uh, conversations and observations with them, uh, and also my observation of society today, uh, I find that they're very stubborn, uh, close-minded and, uh, conventional and you know, their societal preferences, such as religion and politics. Um, And, you know, I I could give examples uh, if you want to comment on that or, you know, have me talk about it more. No, no, go for it. So I see something like the war on drugs and, you know, it's disgusting uh, how it's dragged on for four decades, nothing but negative results, destroying lives. And, uh, you know, I think that you know, like I've had a few conversations with a few baby boomers about it. I've given them all the evidence, all the facts as to well. why it's absolutely terrible. And they'll either give me you know, well it's hard for me to take a stance on that just because it wouldn't be societally societally uh, acceptable to them or they'll say you can't tell me that drugs being illegal it doesn't uh, give people a disincentive. Even when I provide facts uh, contrary to that, they just will deny it. Um, And also, I think this comes from the silent generation, the generation before them, raising them. I think the silent generation, I don't know if you'd agree with this, I think they were very patriotic and religious. And I think this led the baby boomers to kind of never question their, uh, you know, if they were raised Democrat or Republican or atheist or Catholic, I think they they 've never really questioned it because they 're just close-minded. I think the Internet uh, has been huge with Generation Y and well the millennials in really presenting new ideas. But so yeah, my question is, why do you think, if you agree, why do you think that the baby boomers are this way??
0: <laughs> Why uh, are the baby boomers the way that they are? What do you think it is?
4: Well, I think it was the way that they're raised by the silent generation. uh, By the silent generation and um, not being exposed to things, the internet-like generation, the generation Y has. Um, And, yeah, mainly their upbringing, though, is my theory.
0: But what aspects of their upbringing do you think?
4: Well, like I said, uh, the silent generation being very patriotic, you know, they they were just coming off of World War II, so there was a feeling of national pride, and I I find that that generation was very religious, so, you know, Baby Boomer likes to have, like, even, I don't find that Baby Boomers are as religious, but they like to have that uh, title next to their name to be sort of accepted
0: in society, if you know what I mean. Um, well, they usually like to call themselves spiritual, right? right? Yeah, which is which is like yeah. all the comfort of religion, but none of the obligations, like exactly. say of going to help the poor directly or something like that. Right.
4: right. Yeah. Or they'll say, "Yeah, I'm Catholic, but I mean, they go to church like two times a year." Uh, yeah. But it's
0: hedging <laughs> com- my bets. Right.
4: Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I think. Um, if you want to
0: comment. Well, I think, I mean, there's lots that could be said about it, and I'll just t- yeah. touch on it briefly, because it's, it's a big topic, of course, right? But right. I think fundamentally what happened was you can lose your strength when you have comfort, right? You, you, it's like a muscle you don't exercise. H- human beings mm-hmm. are designed to strengthen through opposition, like just, a, like just like a muscle. You work the muscle, it gets bigger, you let it sit on the couch, it gets weaker. And certainly in the West, and and particularly in America, the children who grew up after the Second World War had it fairly easy. I mean, they did have the nuclear war thing, which was a huge fucking deal when I was a kid. Like, I, uh, I just read Ben Shapiro's book on how the left conquered Hollywood, and he talks about the movie The Day After. And I remember the movie the day after there are a couple of movies then about nuclear war. And I mean, I, 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 I don't remember feeling as angry about anything as I did about nuclear war, about the helplessness, about the fucked upness of the world. Yeah. that People on the other side of the planet could push a button and turn me into a nuclear shadow mm-hmm. in about an hour. I mean, it's just completely destabilizing. So they had that. And I'm not going to minimize that. That was not unimportant. And that was a big and very real threat which, you know, even if the war and terror were real, I mean, fuck, <laughs> compared to the complete annihilation of all life on the planet, uh, you know, <laughs> kids yeah. these days got it pretty easy, right? So, so but, Yeah, so I think that there is a, a problem that happens without philosophy. With philosophy, you always have more challenges. Mm-hmm. But if you are simply in your base mammalian comfort zone, then if you get more stuff, then you get kind of lazy. And, yeah. I, you know, in, in, in the sort of post-war period, I mean, there were like 20 years there of pretty much straight economic boom times of like incredibly, what is it they say? Uh, Old economy, Steve, is a meme that's floating around. I don't know if you've seen it. Some guy with like this... Uh, the <laughs> Kiss Curls disco bondage headgear from the 1970s. And, you know, he's like, uh, I, I didn't like my job at one place. I walked across the street and got a job at another place. You know, by <laughs> the time I was 28, I'd paid off my house. You know, because that was yeah. the old economy. They had a uh-huh. lot of stability, they had a lot of opportunity, they had a lot of growth. And because they didn't have ideals to strive for, that put them in rational opposition to the existing power structures, they just, I think, got kind of lazy. They got kind of, you know, like the good times are there, the good times are fine, and you don't have to nurture the economy. You don't have to protect and defend your freedoms because we're all very very comfortable. And I think there's that aspect of it as well. But, you know, I mean, the boomers are going to pay. You know, I mean, I hate to say it, and I sure wish it had been different, but it's not. And, I mean... So much of, of what's going to happen to them in terms of healthcare is going to be brutal, is going to be mm-hmm. brutal. Let me ask you a question. I mean, you're young, so what the hell do you care about this stuff? But <laughs> trust me, yeah. I, thought I'd, I thought I'd be young forever, too. But, but what percentage of US healthcare spending do you think is spent on chronic conditions, like stuff that you can't really cure but doesn't kill you? Like diabetes and 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 stuff like that. Oh, uh, low rent heart disease and stuff. Hmm. I'd imagine it's pretty low. Chronic, like diabetes. Um, well, no, like all all the stuff that is is just requires people to be on medication. Oh, uh, okay. Blood thinners, uh, insulin, you know, all that kind of stuff.
4: Oh, hmm. oh, you mean like uh, medicine for high cholesterol?
0: Yeah, the, like all that? the stuff that you you can't cure it exactly, but it's. Um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't yeah. usually kill you, at least uh, not for a long time. Man, I'm not sure. It's 85%.
4: Wow, yeah, because all the medication.
0: 85%, and, and like half of Americans have at least one of these chronic health conditions. And like 20% yeah. or something like that have like two or more.
4: Yeah, my, my, my dad is on yeah, one. He's on, um, I think maybe blood thinners, uh, definitely for high cholesterol, though he's on some medication for that.
0: Yeah. Now, there are a few people who've got high cholesterol for genetic reasons, but the vast yeah. majority of people, you know, they didn't exercise. Right. You know, osteoporosis and shit like that, like blood, like when your, your bones get thin and brittle, mm-hmm. it, it's mostly because people didn't drink milk and exercise. Yeah. And like 70% of all health health issues are lifestyle related, which basically means people choose them. Uh, and and, uh, and among chronic conditions, I assume it's even higher, right? And of course, there's massive profit in in getting people onto these these drugs, right? These these treatments, these these protocols that just go on and on forever.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And like I think they're talking about lowering cholesterol thresholds now, so that forty percent of American men would need to be on these pills. Hugely profitable, and of course, you know it's paid for by the um, employer uh, and and so on. And right. So – and the reason I'm sort of talking about all of this is that it's all, uh, it's all complete madness. I mean, I mean yeah. insurance – if I drive blindfolded at 100 miles an hour and I have a crash, no rational insurance company would, would cover me, right?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Like there's – if you're an asshole phase, like clause, this clause in contracts, is, it should be – it would be standard in a free society. Like we'll cover you for car accidents unless you're being – a turbo jacked asshole right like unless you're like racing down a suburban street at triple the speed limit then we're not covering you for shit in fact we'll we'll follow the lynch mob past the trail of kids to to string you up right Mm -hmm. so if if you are engaging in behavior that is excessively risky incredibly risky then insurance is not appropriate insurance for the is, is for the oh shit you know, I got hit by lightning out of a clear sky, right? Right, yeah. No, that, That's what insurance is for, right? That's why you don't get insurance for your oil change, right? Because you know, I need insurance because yeah. my car is going to run out of gas and someone's got to fill it, right? That's something. So insurance shouldn't, ide- ideally, it shouldn't cover, you know, shit that you did to yourself or that was avoidable, right? Like Tom Hanks just got uh, diabetes, right? He's diagnosed with diabetes. And for years beforehand, his do- his doctor was saying, just drop some weight. Just go back to what you weighed in high school. You'll be fine. He's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. It's like, I'll lose like 900 pounds for a shitty movie like Castaway, but not <laughs> to avoid, you know, my foot falling off and shit like that, right? So, So the whole insurance market is completely screwed up because… Most of what people are getting sick of is environmental preventable stuff, like obesity. It's driving like a third of American healthcare costs. And obesity is incredibly treatable. <laughs> I mean, just put the fucking cupcake down. You know, I yeah. mean, I hate to put it that bluntly. <laughs> like, I gained a bit of weight and I lost – I'm losing a little bit of weight now because – uh, when I was on treatment for, for uh, cancer this summer, I uh, there was a particular kind of food that I don't normally eat, would could take, get rid of the chemical taste in my mouth. So I gained to like, I don't know, six or seven pounds. I'm losing it now. And so you just don't, you know, put the cupcake down, get off the couch. I mean, you can still watch TV. You know, like I watched a Dr. Phil last night. I did 150 sit-ups. I mean, you can still watch TV. You just do your leg lifts or whatever. I just, just move a little bit and, and you know, most... Most of what people get sick from. But anyway, so people have made these really shitty lifestyle choices. And, and one of the reasons they do that is A, because they don't have people in their life who's saying, hey, you know, Ladas, get off the couch, put down the donut and let's deal with this problem, right? Because maybe everyone else is around them like that. But they also don't have insurance companies that are allowed to say if you don't drop 20 pounds, your, your, your premiums are going to double. Because everybody wants to pool all their risks to, to everything else, right? So these early warning signals of the true costs of your healthcare have all been dampened out by the marketplace. Like 15 or 20 years ago, I read something long before all the government got, got even more involved in, in insurance and all that. I read about a guy who was like, oh, you know, I was kind of overweight and this and that. And I got a letter from my insurance company saying, you know, we're dropping your coverage if you don't get your numbers below this. Because you're just too expensive. And he's like, that was a real wake-up call to me. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so he's like, I started doing this. I changed this. Right? And, and this, this has all been diluted away. I mean, it should be individual insurance, one person, and the insurance company. None of this fucking bullshit where you get enrolled with everyone at your workplace and everyone's costs get diluted. That denies you the early warning signals of bad health habits.
4: Yeah. It takes the responsibility away from people.
0: Yeah, and they just kind of drift through life doing this shit, and they don't get somebody. That you you got to go up against people sometimes, like a pinball, just bang. You bounce back hard, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, how many people in life tell each other the truth? Jesus, it's like we're an entire conspiracy of deluded Cartesian silence. You know, it's just sick, the way that that people uh, delude each other and avoid the truth with each other. You know, you got. 10 fat people around a Thanksgiving table, you know, eating more than an African village could consume in a monsoon season. And not anyone is saying, you know, holy shit, maybe we should go for a walk after dinner, guys, because, man, uh, this, <laughs> this is not good, right? Yeah. So, and so the reason I'm telling you all of this is that, I mean, they're just going to bankrupt the healthcare system. I mean, they're just, this healthcare system is is like less than five years away. And this is not just my estimate. It's like five, five six years away from just being completely bankrupt. I mean, Barack Obama has taken the debt from $20 trillion – sorry, yeah, $20 trillion to $20 trillion from $10 trillion. In other words, he's added more debt in two terms than the entirety of U.S. presidents before him. Yeah. And again, I know it's entitlement spending and a lot of it is is not under his control. But nonetheless, this is the sort of reality. This is ridiculously unsustainable. And – Young young people are just going to drop out. I mean, Atlas Shrugged wrote about, this was written about in 1953. They go to the gray market. They go to the black market. They're like, you know, basically, you know, fuck your fat hides. I can't spend my life slaving away to pay for all of your stupid decisions about not exercising and eating like a pig. I'm sorry. I can't do it. I have compassion. I care. I wish you'd made different decisions 40 years ago, but I'm not giving up one of my healthy lungs because you were a chain smoker and didn't quit. Yeah. So they will, you know, they'll, they'll pay and, and it will be a massive and ugly lesson in what happens when you don't fight the growth of state power and when you get sucked into the oldest con game of assholes promising you something for nothing. I mean this is the entire history of the state, it, you, you know, just volume one, assholes <laughs> promising you something for nothing, <laughs> volume two. More assholes, (laughs) promising you something for nothing. Number three, assholes in funny hats, promising you something for nothing. Number four, assholes in suits, promising (laughs) you something for nothing. Right? That's all it is. Assholes promising you something for nothing. And, I mean, everybody knows you can't get something for nothing. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And the reality, of course, is that it's just a lesson people have to learn over and over and over and over again and hopefully we're getting smart enough, right? You're genetically much smarter than I am and hopefully, uh, you know, we're getting smart enough to not be fooled by it again. And the last thing I'll say, which is going to sound like, you know, youth, youthful pandering, but yeah, but I really believe that that your generation, like you guys, mm-hmm. are made of stronger stuff. I hope so. I, I do believe that. I think that you've looked at what's come ahead and you said, well, we got a bunch of flaccid people that look like everyone in the second half of Wally, and and this is not where we want to go. This is not who we want to be. And we see the consequences of what happens. You know, like this this thing I read when I was a kid. I don't know, I was like eight or so in um, Reader's Digest, and it left a really strong impression with me. It was called Scared Straight. It was a Scared Straight program, and they touched on it in Orange is the New Black recently. But basically, they'd take these kids who were juvenile delinquents and so on, and they take them to prison, and they, the prisoners would scare the shit out of them about what life in prison was like and all that kind of stuff. And I think that your generation has looked at what has happened uh, to freedom and has seen the effects of what happens when you, through the painless laser, laser surgery of propaganda, remove an entire generation's spine uh, and, and get them addicted to all of the free evil blood pellets of state power, you see what happens. You've seen what happens. It's pretty clear. And you guys are facing this tsunami of uh, a bullshit and debt that's rolling down the hill. And I think that you've, you've seen it. And I think that there's a kind of like you guys are going to have to do some seriously brave stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's... it is going to be a take no prisoners kind of situation. And I, you know, much though I hate to see suffering of any kind, when people have brought it on themselves, I cannot see the justice enforcing other people. To, to pay for that. I, I just, I cannot see the value in it. Like if I do something really stupid and poke my eye out, I don't think I get to scoop yours out with a spoon and pop it in my socket. Like I'm sorry, I have to live with the consequences of my decisions. And everybody makes bad decisions and then like everybody who makes bad decisions, you're desperate to avoid the consequences of it. Uh, and not you, but but people are. And I think that your generation has really seen that in a very clear way and you've also seen all the lies that people say are social virtues you know like well we care so much about the children really feel like taking on the teachers unions no (laughs) No, not really, because it's a lot easier to just talk about how much we care about the children and then let them get fucked up by shitty schools and laden them down with completely unsustainable levels of of national debt uh, and sell off their future pound by pound to foreign banksters. It's much easier to to just say that we care about the children and then act in the complete opposite way. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a cynicism that's healthy and rational that your generation has looking at what is done versus what is said, because there's nothing less excusable than moral hypocrisy because moral hypocrisy is when you know what the right thing is to do and you loudly proclaim what the right thing is to do and then do the exact opposite because then you can never claim a lack of knowledge
4: yeah uh it's very scary for someone like me you know i'm 18 about to uh enter college and i just see what's before me this massive debt uh you know now the socialized health care which is obvious uh is obviously unsustainable and it's it's just really scary obviously it's a tough road ahead but... no no no
0: you're missing you're missing you're missing something and i'm sorry it's annoying to interrupt you but you're missing something yeah. do you know what is available to you that is greater in its positive potential than fear is in its negative do you know what you get the most wonderful potential for and capacity for true balls-to-the-wall, base-of-the-spine heroism. Mm -hmm. Like, you guys have this incredible opportunity to be brave, heroic, stern, staunch, rational, and just. Because you've seen the consequences of of not, right? What happens when you don't. And there is, of course there's, there's fear, absolutely, of course, right? right? But, you know, when I grew up, there was all this fear, uh, soldiers going to war, they were scared, right? right. But, you know, they, they, they said, uh, but, but you get to be heroic, you get to wear medals, we'll have poppies in your honor, right? You, you'll get uh, statues, you, you will have your own day, you'll be heroes, just for one day, right? So you'll be heroes, and, and this was supposed to be fantastic, right? And you get that chance without all of the annoying bullets and landmines, right? And bombs. You get the chance for heroism in the most noble of spheres, which is heroism for rational righteousness. And There's a great quote from the movie Patton with George C. Scott. He says something like this. Uh, the purpose of war is not for you to die for your country but to make the other sad son of a bitch die for his country. <laughs> it's a great line. Yeah. And look, unfortunately, we are now in a situation as a society where enormous suffering is going to result from all of the desperate mistakes that have been made and the desperate cowardice and avoidance of your elders. Mm-hmm. And either your life gets sacrificed for mistakes you never made or other people's lives and quality of lives are going to have to get sacrificed for the decisions that they have made. So when the old people come along and they say, well, we need you to pay taxes at 75% because I sat on the couch and did not exercise for 40 years, the resolution and courage in your generation may be to say, look, I'm sorry. I'm desperately, incredibly, and totally sorry. But No. No. You had your choice. You had your chance. You had your life. You made your decisions. You know, when I was six years old, if I'd made the decision not to study for a spelling test, did you know what I got? F. I got an F. Mm-hmm. And People say, well, but this is much more important than a spelling test. Well, not, you know, in many ways, not so much. You know, if, if I didn't pass a grade, you know, I lost a year of my life. Got stuck back a year. Mm-hmm. If I didn't get out of high school, it cost me about a million dollars in earnings over the course of my life. It's not small. It's a very big deal. And if kids are responsible for the negative consequences of their choices, why are not 70-year-olds responsible for the negative consequences of their dec- of their And then people say, well, yes, but it's life and death. And it's like, exactly it is life and death, which is why it's so important to make better decisions. Yeah. And so I think that there is going to be a giant panicked sucking sound coming from the elder generation when they realize they handed over all their money to a government that has blown it all on all the blood-soaked bric-a-brac of power. And there is going to have to be a swallowing and a resolution in your generation, I think, to have to say, no, unless. No, I will not unless unless you accept that the system must change, right? I've said this, I I will be happy to pay 75% taxation as long as the old people say the system must change. If they don't want the system to change, I really have no sympathy in my heart for them because then they're just predatory. And sorry, that's just, you know, it's wrong for anyone to prey on anyone, but for the old to prey upon the young is a special kind of scumbaggery. I don't care how high... Your Florida pants are hitched. I don't care how many fucking black socks you wear with your sandals. I don't care how short your suspenders are or how many kids you want to get off your lawn. You don't get to prey on the young and innocent because you made stupid ass decisions about your health and about state power throughout your entire life. People must accept the consequences of their decisions. That's what I was taught when I was six. And I'm damn well not going to withhold that lesson from people who are 80 or 70.
4: Yeah, that's what you're saying. I I know exactly what you mean. Uh, Yeah, our generation has a noble task ahead. Hopefully, we're smart enough to not repeat the same
0: mistakes that our ancestors made. Oh, you are. You know the Flynn effect, right? It's a couple of percentage points smarter every generation. Really? Mm-hmm. That's why I said earlier, genetically, you are smarter than me. Significantly, because we're two generations apart, right? I'm pushing 50, and you're not even 20. Yeah. So we're like... Right. So mm-hmm. well, at least a generation and three quarters. So, yeah, I think uh, it is uh, it is necessary. And there will be a massive, you know, shiny gray caterwauling from the elder generation and from the generation who had shitty choices, like from the women who made shitty choices and who they wanted to father their children and from the people who've made shitty choices about careers and have decided to rely on the state rather than fend for themselves. You know, the massive parasite classes are going to squall uh, and cry and use every conceivably evil emotional manipulative trick in the book in order to extract yet more resources from the innocent and pour it into their own guilty hides. And I wish that we could snap our fingers and have it be different. I wish we could snap our fingers and bring enough resources into the world to take care of everyone. But, you know, there is no magic under sun or moon. And um, if it comes to a choice... Uh, I would definitely suggest that you guys fight for your future rather than attempt to scoop out your innards and fill it into the holes of people's past mistakes.
4: All right. Well, actually, um, you answered both my questions uh, in this conversation, one. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> Usually that
0: means I didn't, but you're just sick and tired of the speechifying. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, all. I'm glad. I'm glad it was helpful. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: All right, Cedric, you're up next, Cedric, go ahead.
6: Hello, hello, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Uh, I'm calling to talk about, I don't know if you ever heard of it, uh, a book by an anthropologist, Pierre Clastres, a French anthropologist.
0: I'm sorry, what was that name again?
6: <laughs> Pierre Claste, I, I don't know how to speak French, so. Okay. I don't know, it's, uh, the I mean, name of the helped book the is. So. All right. The name of the book is "Society Against the State." You know, it's. Uh, I have not. It sounds a, like my cup of tea, though. <laughs> yeah, he's a left anarchist, so much of the much of the content of the book is pretty much, you know, uh, wrong, plain, plain, playful wrong. Well, he is French. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think he's part of the the uh, anthropologist movement that.
0: Other tried, than Veronique de Rougie, I don't know too many. <laughs> French libertarians. I'm sure there are some. I think <laughs> yeah. that uh, I think Walter Bloch has talked about them in his uh, debate uh, yeah. about the value of academics. Uh, but uh, go ahead.
6: Yeah, there was this movement in anthropology where they tried to uh, study the indigenous population, trying to justify the thesis that uh, uh, basically economically, uh, economic. Uh, economic uh, economic uh, disparities will will be the cause of all the problems in the world, you know? So, yeah, pretty much there there are many things in this book that's uh, wrong, but I think that what's really important about this book is that the insight um, that an anarchic society is not really a society that's without a state, but a society actively against the state, you know?
0: You mean like forever?
6: No, no. I mean um, a society that's uh, actually uh, actively and rationally standing against the state, the the concept of the state, and the you know you know how we usually talk about uh, you know how usually many people try to bring up Somalia as an example of a stateless society. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But um, I, I would I would say I would argue that that's wrong because. Um, Anarchy is not just uh, uh, the scenario where the state disappeared, but a scenario where the people in that society are rationally and actively against a
0: state institution. You know where... uh, No, I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about.
6: For example, um, because uh, his argument is that um, the indigenous people... Uh, it's not that, I mean, the main, mainstream anthropologists used, uh, used to to say that um, uh, indigenous societies were too primitive to even think of a state, you know? Like, they're too primitive to have a state. They're too primitive to be civilized in a manner that they
0: have a state. And his, Well, yeah, but it's still the same thing. That's like saying that uh, Stone Age people didn't have machine guns, they only had clubs. But it's still a weapon, right? I no, mean, yes. they, they had abusive hierarchies, violent hierarchies. They yes. just, you know, wasn't hadn't evolved to the modern state for sure.
6: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, the, his thesis is that these indigenous societies are actually against the state, and I'm I, I think he's pretty much wrong about his thesis. But I
0: think that it's it's an important insight. You know, it's like saying, "Wait, is this uh, is this the noble savage bullshit?" You know, like, uh, yeah. ah, you know, these these, these Indians, uh, these Native Americans, they lived in peace and harmony with their, <laughs> with their yeah, surroundings. Much, you know? and, and then Western man came along and corrupted them and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's all complete embarrassing nonsense. I'd love to send some of these people back in time <laughs> to spend six months yep. uh, in these kinds of societies and just see what happened when they got a toothache or stubbed their toe or, you know, uh, a bug bite with uh, – tetanus. Anyway, go on.
6: Yeah, he, pretty much. The, it's that uh, he comes to the ridiculous statement that the Indians uh, waged war for fun, you know, for sports. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's
0: Like, oh yeah, let,
6: let, let's see, we're right. gonna so, die today, you know.
0: It's, so they was, they were, um, they were just sadists. I mean, they took enjoyment out of uh, these kinds of conflicts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. You know, it's like, it's like this idea that somehow, and this comes out of like. Kunta Kinte and Roots and Alex Haley's stuff, which I remember watching as a kid. This idea, you see, that uh, Africa was was full of, of noble Nubian savage beauties uh, who who lived in harmony with nature and uh, who never thought of harming a fly and would you know whisper pairs of apology towards the animals before they gently ate them. And then the white man, you know, came along and enslaved them, and and you know it's all been downhill from there. It all comes from this Garden of Eden nonsense, right? That that back in the day, boy, don't you know, there was just all this great, wonderful stuff. Uh, and then civilization and shit came along. And basically, it's just an emotional projection of infancy, right? And infancy before you learn about the state and before people start scaring the shit out of you with hell uh, is a pretty idyllic time. And so there's this idea. And people then project that onto primitive societies and they say – well, you know, when I was a baby, um, I wasn't scared by propaganda. I didn't have to go to school. Uh, I wasn't—I don't certainly don't remember being spanked, and uh, it was warm and cuddly and lovely. And then they then project that for various emotional mechanisms onto primitive societies and say those primitive societies were peaceful and loving and lovely and this and that. And they also project that, of course, into future societies. You know, the workers' paradise, the like, supercomputer and stuff like that—that that, that paradise is just there. It's just out of our reach and and so on, and uh, I mean, historically, it's all nonsense. I mean, they excavate the, uh, the graves of these natives, and they all died from horrible blunt trauma wounds of the heads and sacrificed their children. They are a bunch of, I mean, not even sociopathic, just completely psychotic savages. And this is why, whenever you see a society that doesn't change, then you see a society with extraordinary sadistic amounts of, of child abuse. And, and the whole myth of of slavery, and you can go to Thomas Sowell, um, the true history of slavery. It's actually on YouTube if you want to listen to it. But very, very briefly, of course. I mean, it was the white Western race that fought the entire world to end slavery. You know, they they fought. I mean, you couldn't go into Africa as a white guy and pick up your slaves because the average life expectancy for a guy who went inland, a white European who went inland to Africa was less than a year. I mean, you get killed by microbes of some god-awful animal or something like that. And uh, so they they bought all the slaves from all the blacks who were catching and killing all the slaves as they had been doing for the previous 100,000 years. And yes, they bought the slaves, and for a short period of time, there was uh, European involvement in slavery. And then the Europeans went, wait a sec, this is is as evil as fuck. And then they fought, literally fought tooth and nail against massive profits to end slavery. I mean, England paid 5% of its GDP to buy off slave owners. They would have tried this in America, except there would have been about 50% of GDP to buy off all the southern slaveholders, although that still would have been cheaper than the... 600,000-plus killed in the American Civil War. Uh, and uh, the, the, the British uh, paid uh, tax and, and paid uh, and, and suffered extraordinary uh, abuses and cruelty on the open seas trying to hunt down the frigates with the slaves on board. And when the frigates, they would, the, 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 the Arabs in particular were insane, insanely evil with their slave owning. The Arabs, if they were being pursued by a British frigate, they would actually cut the throats of the slaves and throw them overboard so they wouldn't be caught with the contraband. And uh, the British would sometimes attempt to board these and and interfere with that and stop that. Uh, They fought literally tooth and nail. It was the white Western European race that ended slavery through bribery, through force of arms, through the immense spending of blood and treasure. They ended one of the oldest occupations in, in human history. And, of course, nobody ever... Really hears about that. All we hear is about that the Europeans were bad. Yeah, I'm glad you brought. Up anyway, I just want to sort of point that out. But but go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad
6: you brought up slavery because it. I I think it's always a perfect analogy for for uh, for the state and uh, the. I I guess the point I'm trying to make is, uh, let's suppose all the slaves just ran off in 18th century America. Would that make a slaveless society? Of course not, because you know it would be a matter of time until some slaves were caught up or. New slaves were brought in or bought, you know. So uh, the concept of a slaveless society is a is a is a society whereas the majority of people, actually take on a abolitionistic abolitionist philosophy. You know, you know.
0: Uh, what yeah, I'm no, I understand, say? but they recognize it as a moral evil, right?
6: Yeah, exactly. So uh, the the point I'm trying to make is that the the concept of anarchy is not just a, a society where the state is uh absent momentarily you know like in somalia but uh, a society where uh people understand the concept and are actively acting to, uh, against the 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 trial of uh, state state actions you know and for example, and even in the case of slavery, it's, it's still pretty common uh, cases of slavery today all around the world. You know, like women slaved in prostitution or, you know, people in farms, like some hidden farms working as actual slaves, like 100% slaves. But we, we still don't say that we are in a slave society nowadays, Be, although there are some, some rudimentary uh, cases of slavery... Because what, determine, what determines what a society is, is how the people, uh, the people living in it actually act toward uh, the, the concept of the, uh, how, how the people living in the society uh, it interprets the legit, legitimacy of the use of force, you know?
0: No, I agree. I agree for sure. Uh, for sure uh, absolutely i i i accept that um we i mean i would certainly argue that uh, what are called the undocumented or the illegal aliens uh, which always sounds a lot more fun than it actually turns out to be they're neither blue nor almond eyed nor do a lot of anal probing i guess some do but um uh, you know these people are living a pretty wretched existence as a result of uh of uh, of statism. You know, it's, it's so funny, of course, that a lot of people on the right in America are against what they call illegal immigration, in which a rational person calls moving. And they are also for the war on drugs, and they obviously don't really understand mm-hmm. the connection between the two, right? That if you go and bomb a whole bunch of crop fields uh, and I- in Mexico, then people can't grow anything. And also, if you take all of your subsidized food and dump it on the Mexican market, then you put a whole bunch of Mexican farmers out of work, and where the hell can they go? Well, they end up having a troop across the border and try and scrape by picking shit in, uh, in Canada, uh, sorry, in, in America, right, the, the, the fruit and so on, right? So I would, uh, uh, you know, sort of remind people that it is, yeah, it's, it's the principles that you're, you're focused on, and sometimes the state is way behind, uh, on the principles that the people have, right? So uh, Brazil was one of the last countries to get rid of slavery. And people became kind of embarrassed. You know, I'm from Brazil. Oh, yeah, we still have slavery. It's really I'm shameful. I'm from Brazil. Oh, yeah. So, so okay. So, so it was interesting the way that it ended up ending, which was – uh, that uh, it became embarrassing to own slaves, because kind of like the rest of the world had been yanked along by the Europeans to recognizing that this eternal and ancient human evil had to end. Yeah, and uh, and uh, so this had kind of spread. spread fact, and what? Sorry,
6: I don't sorry, go ahead. You know this fact from history, but um, England actually uh, passed an edict prohibiting uh, slave smuggling through, uh, through uh, across the across the oceans. You know. And oh no yeah since Brazil couldn 't fight off that, they passed a law right after prohibiting also like you know it 's not that Brazil actually prohibited because they actually thought it was wrong, but just because they didn 't want to fight off England
0: no, but and I agree with that for sure, but what happened socially was interesting before that, which is that it became socially shameful to own slaves, yeah it became rather than a status symbol, it became a mark of Just shittiness, right? And so what happened was people began to shun people who owned slaves. It became, and so what happened was people actually began to free their slaves for for two reasons. One, because it was considered socially shameful, and, and two, because most people didn't want to get the, like to catch the slaves. Right? Like if you were a slave who escaped in the South, like in the early 19th century in America, I mean you had to use the Underground Railway because if people caught you, they're like, damn, that's a free slave. we got to put him back and they call the cops and they'll, they'll whatever, tackle you down and tie you up and all that and there's a reward and so on. So there's a lot of social stuff that has to go into that, particularly pre-electronics and so on, into catching slaves. And in Brazil, people are like, yeah, a slave who's got away, good for you. Here's some food. You know, Here's, uh, here's some money. Go. Go where you need to go. They didn't call the cops. And so basically, because nobody participated in catching the slaves, the slaves couldn't be caught. And what was happening was the the landowners in Brazil were freaking out because they had all these workers who were, you know, they trusted the the slaves, right? And they were all just wandering off. And so they said, okay, we're going to free you, but just stay here. I'll pay you. I'll turn you into a worker. Uh, I'll free you legally and stay here, and and this is kind of what they did. And after all of this, then I guess the, you know, it was all made illegal and so on. But it was already happening before the government caught up. It was happening through social enforcement and through uh, all of that. And I think that's really uh, really important. Uh, to to so it's sort of a interesting case study of of how things can change long before the state catches up.
6: Yeah, and there was the case of the immigrants here also. You know that the the. The Italian and Japanese and German immigrants that came here to work basically as slaves, also, you know, in the 19th century. Right, right. Terrible lives, also.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. And of course, there is still a slave market. And and Peter Joseph pointed this out in the debate, and he's he's quite right. I mean, there is still a market for slaves in the world, particularly sex slaves, uh, and of course, and particularly the underage. Uh, sex slaves. I mean, this webcam sex trade, which you know, if the stories are to be believed, they put together a computer-generated ten-year-old Filipino girl um, called I don't know Sparkle Thighs or something like that. You know, and a whole bunch of creeps around the world wanted to pay her to have sex with her sister or I don't know some something, one of these Japanese handjob robots or something like that. Uh, and it is, yeah. I mean, it is wretched the degree to which this this enslavement is is still occurring around the world.
6: Yeah, exactly. the The point is, uh, if if people find out that there there's that there are happening sl- cases of slavery nearby, they will they will revolt against it. You know, and that's that that's how you determine if it if a society is free of slaves or anti-slavery. You know, I, I think the case of anarchy is also the same. We have to to read. It. I mean, I I think it's a it's a it's beneficial if we define anarchy as a society against a state you know
0: yeah and I would, but I would argue it's not against a state I mean that, there's not a principle right to be against a state I mean the, the, the problem that the causes have or that people have with causes is they just don't work them philosophically right so people are grossed out by slavery and the slavery is immoral right okay so then they have to figure out what about slavery is immoral well, it's the forcible transfer of someone else's labor, right? Yeah. Okay. So, if hundred percent slavery is wrong, what about fifty percent slavery? Yeah, exactly. What about ten percent slavery? What about one percent slavery? Right. Which is the taxes system, taxation system. So, if the forcible transfer of somebody else's property uh, and labor is wrong, somebody else's personhood is wrong. Then it's wrong, in proportion, right? And therefore, you say, okay, well, now we're done with slavery, we've got to take on taxation. Because that is the same principle. But people emotionally respond to something and don't examine and explore the principles of it. Which is why we simply keep replacing one evil uh, with another. It's just playing whack-a-mole, right? So, anyway, I just sort of, uh, that's one of the things that UPB is designed to do or has the happy results of achieving is uh, to really help people to understand the principles behind what it is that they oppose so that they're not forever playing whack-a-mole and and replacing one evil with another one
6: yeah well i, I would like to thank you for the patience and sorry for stuttering so much because i haven't had a conversation in english in you know so long so in some have been in ages and uh i would like to ask you if i could uh schedule to have a quick q a with you sometime because i'm part of the students for liberty in brazil and i, w- I would love to have a quick q a with you to post on our website
0: would that be possible? i appreciate that and anytime you uh, you lovely brazilian liberty folk want to invite me back <laughs> i had
6: uh yeah I watched had your debate. it was awesome
0: yeah i had some fun stuff last time and uh spoke some truth to power and uh my daughter i mean i would love to go back <laughs> she still talks about it uh, really? you know, a year and a half later so oh yeah she just she loved it there uh and um i mean i mean we we flew in a private plane to rio because those. of the generosity of one of the hosts uh, moms and so it was hard for her not to have a great time plus she loved the movie rio and then she's on the beach where it all happens and she just she just went mental so anyway, um, yeah, just just uh, you give an email to Mike operations at freedomainradio.com. and uh, I believe he only takes, uh, if I remember rightly, he only takes emails with nude pictures attached. So <laughs> uh, just just get busy. I think he likes them 3D as well, and if they have smell-o-vision, so much the better. Although that may require a 3D printer that he also has right by his bedside. So okay. uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, Mike. Uh, who, who's the, next uh, the website just crashed. It, I don't know what happened. It just disappeared. <laughs> oh, that's just me. That's just me, as usual, Mike, trying to pass your firewall with more nude pictures of me. <laughs> I see. Adding you to know, that sexual chemo, harassment lawsuit. Just that's right, adding ever to since the chemo, p- the the carpet doesn't match the drapes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. After that, Michael, you're our last caller today. Michael, go ahead. It's the last one who wants to be on the show. <laughs> if you still want to be, Michael. <laughs> right.
7: Hello, Stefan. I spoke to you a couple of nights ago. I was um, curious about uh, homeschooling. Um, This is something that my wife and I are going to do. Actually, she had wanted to. uh, She had talked about this a couple of years ago, and I was actually ambivalent about it. And now I'm very gung-ho about it. Um, My sons are only three, and one's going to be one tomorrow. And um, you know, we have plenty of room in the house. She even set up like a little classroom and. Everything's going really well. I mean, she's really terrific at it, and she worked with kids a lot before, and
0: she's really a great mother all around. But um, he was in. And we we talked just the other night, right? Yeah, about, we, I talked uh, to you about my brother. And dude, listen, I mean, holy crap! Thank you so much for that subscription. Wow. Oh, it's, I mean, it's well worth it. It's my pleasure. I'm currently um I'm of course slithering around in a bathtub full of gold coins, and uh, I would just like to say. Uh, thank you for that opportunity. Uh, I'm sure you got the private webcam feed, uh, which has probably caused your webcam to commit hurry curry with its uh, power cord. But uh, thank you. say oh, really I, I don't thank have you. that so, actually. No. Well, <laughs> catch <count> yourself like, <laughs> For lower donations, we send that out. Uh, <laughs> donations get to escape that. But uh, sorry, go ahead.
7: No, no problem. Um, by the way, one entrepreneur to another, your site is very easy to pay if you're not already a subscriber. And really good for one-time donations, if you are. and um, you know frankly, it's always a good idea to make it easy to pay. but um well, but I do appreciate it by the way, I'm in the tax business. I would love to be able to direct deposit people's refunds with bitcoins. and I'm thinking of putting a sign in my door that I accept them. Hmm. but you um, you must be making a fortune on the other hand, even though they're not that liquid.
0: Well, I don't know. It's you know everything's on paper, uh, and tragically, I lost some bitcoins that uh, I try not to think about too much uh, in, in a terrible system crash, which was my idiocy not knowing enough about the technology. But uh, yeah, it's certainly uh, no, no complaints about what it's doing, and uh, I mean, I, I hope the people who watched my Bitcoin presentation uh, were able to buy in when it was much lower. So uh, we'll see. But is it tough?
7: Is it tough to um, to make them liquid in bulk?
0: No, just, uh, I mean, there's, there's, I certainly have, uh, there's some people up here in Canada who will cash them out uh, anytime I want for um, 1% overhead. So it's, uh, it's fine.
7: That's pretty good. That's pretty good. My question about, uh, about homeschooling is my three-year-old was in daycare for three days a week. And um, he was having some speech issues when he was like one and a half. And really, um, we had some people come in and, they basically saw in two seconds that he had, like, low tone and he should use a straw and then
0: you know, he was a little— uh, I'm sorry. What was that? He had low tone? Should use low, a straw?
7: Low tone in the uh, jaw.
0: I don't know what that means. Oh, like muscle tone? Yeah, muscle tone. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I didn't know what okay. it meant at the time either. But low tone. Though, what does he sound like, Barry White? I mean, <laughs> what the hell does that well, mean? Kind of, Get him on stage, man. <laughs>
7: <laughs> By the way, it was amazing advice. We gave him a straw, and two weeks later, he spoke clear as a bell.
0: Oh, that's because the straw works the cheek muscles and all that? Oh, okay. Right. So,
7: I mean, these people from the state came in to do this analysis, and I was sort of against it at first. They sent, by the way, the state sends four people to your house to do this, and uh, one (laughs) one doesn't work, and the other three literally watch. Nice. You know, but that was all worth it. The first two minutes, she just saw this right away, and after that, you know, there was some social issues we were worried about, so he wound up going to daycare for three days a week, and you know, he's three now, so he just stopped. And um, you know, he... sorry.
0: And when did he when he went when he was a year and a half? Uh, a little older than a year
7: and a half, I think is when he started.
0: So he went for, and he went a for three, day, three, three days a week, and how often during the day? How long? Well, he was signed up for
7: the whole day. A lot of times, we would get him like like after a few hours in the morning because they don't really do a whole lot in the afternoon, to be honest. Like anything educational is in the morning and social. So, um, but let's say he was there at five o'clock, maybe one or two days and to like 11, 12 o'clock the other days. All right. Um, and you know, he loved it. You know, I told, he's fond of saying now to, especially my wife that, uh, you know, daddy told me, you know, I don't have to go to school anymore and I could stay home with mommy all day, which isn't exactly the way I put it, but basically, uh, <laughs> um, you know, he's very excited about the whole thing. And frankly, in the last couple of weeks to my mind, you know that he's been home you know he's he's actually more to me obviously more empathetic I mean I mean it amazes me the things that he thinks of and says like he asked me if I feel bad because his boo-boo hurts like two days later I mean you know he's really thinking about other people and and uh, developing in all kinds of ways but he is becoming more clingy so in my wife's way of looking at it he's sort of regressing and, What
0: is uh, hang on what does clingy mean
7: ah this is like a conversation I had a lot lately
0: like um, you know, like that's just got a negative mom. connotation he, to it already, right? So I'm just what right, does
7: it mean? right. And this is exactly what I'm saying. Like, why should he wants to be with his mother? You know, that's kind of natural, you know. So you know, and basically, you know, her her point of view is it's just like all the time. Like all of a sudden, he like goes to the bathroom with her, like, and that didn't happen before when he was at school. You know, even when he was home from school, of course.
0: So, you know, know why that is right. What's that? You know why that is right.
7: Uh, Well, I'm curious on your thoughts. I I would assume the change in his routine must have a serious effect
0: on him. Well, no, it's because he's, he's scared of being sent back. Ah, of course. Right. But Here's the thing.
7: Oh, here's the other thing that makes it tricky. He says that, you know, he misses his friends and he has no friends now and mommy's his best friend you know, so he's like used to being around these kids at school. <laughs> His friend, frankly, you know, I didn't even necessarily love him being around this kid so much. It was like the director's son, and it was a kind of ridiculous the things that were going on. As one of the reasons, I kind of soured on the school even before I decided to homeschool him. But um, you know, but to her, you know, it's kind of like she's not necessarily doing enough so that he doesn't feel like he doesn't have any friends. Like he's not getting enough socialization.
0: You know, so I'm just having trouble. Well, OK, but, yeah. but but hold on a sec. So, of course, there's there's no reason why you can't schedule your play dates and your sleepovers and all that kind of stuff, right?
7: <laughs> and that's what we've been doing, you know, but it's so new, you know what I mean? So like, I kind of feel like that's kind of like inevitable that he's going to say stuff like that. And I don't know, my wife's concerned about it. And there's this clingy thing that she's worried about. So. You know, to her, like to me, school was abandonment. Uh, you know, I mean, I have an absolute, a little bit what you learned about me last time. I could assure you, I have an absolute, you know, uh, hatred for all authority, and um, and not to mention, you know, there's no real valid education there, and a lot of the social. It's my true, of her own experience, and and um, so even though she's for homeschool, she's not necessarily against school. And she thinks, like, maybe my older son would benefit from that because
0: of these. Okay, things. sorry, just just before we get into that, so sure. let's go back to the, what, what, I mean, the word clingy is obvi- obviously negative to begin with. I'm just curious Definitely. why it wouldn't be something like affectionate.
7: Me, that's the way I see it, and that's just not the way she sees it. Um, she, she has been, uh, she's had this uh, postpartum depression that she was diagnosed with and um it's very weird like it's very hormonal like how it could shift from one thing to the next but you know i mean she's great with the kids she gets so much enjoyment out of it so it's it is hard for me to understand that to be honest with you
0: what was her infancy and childhood like
7: early childhood hard uh hard absolutely my childhood was wonderful next to hers she
0: yeah like so let me just say and look i say this with all of the infinite caveats that i am once You know, that I I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground when it comes to expertise in this area. So this is all amateur bullshit. But, uh, you know, postpartum depression to me, uh, it's mostly associated with people who had really shitty infancies, whose bodies are then remembering all the loss that can't make it to consciousness. I didn't know that. I've been reading about it. I did not know that. Well, no, this is not something to know because this is just my opinion, right? This is not, ah, this is an answer. This is my opinion. Uh, because I mean, I've certainly known people who've gone through it. Everyone I've known who's gone through it. This is why I asked about her infancy. Everyone I know who's gone through postpartum depression had a shitty unstable infancy. That's interesting. Now this, this is not scientific. You understand again, all the caveats, please don't take this as any kind of answer or anything final. It's just, it's a correlation that I, I have noticed. I appreciate you. insight by the way. Yeah. So it's, it's just something to to talk about right so so here's here's an example this is what i think clingy means to people right so let's say that your wife uh, did not have a strong bond with her own mother but she really wanted that bond with her mother because all babies do we were desperate for it i mean people like a baby will choose a starving baby will choose mother over food it's that fundamental to to our survival and cuz we can survive Without a meal for twenty ten minutes, usually, but we cannot survive without a mother at all. I mean, just die, right? right? And so, if your mother had, sorry, <laughs> if your wife had a yearning for an absent mother figure, then all of that yearning would still be in her. It never goes away. You can work with it, but it never goes away, right? Mm-hmm. And then if her child is expressing a great deal of need for her that's going to awaken in her unconsciously her own unmet childhood yearning and she's going to recoil from it and she's going to call it clingy rather than affectionate Wow! because it causes anxiety within her. It causes a, a, a pain in her about her own unmet needs because that's her, right? To, in her unconscious, that's her she has- and she yeah, a
7: relationship now with her mother. Do you think that plays into it at all, or that's just a consequence of what happened then, like this is?
0: Tell me what you mean. I want to make sure I'm answering the right question. Well, she has a relationship with her
7: mother. Like she's, she's had a relationship with her mother continually. Uh, well,
0: does she have what you and I – or sorry, does she have what I would call a relationship with her mother? Yeah.
7: Absolutely not. So that's I'm wondering a, if that's a consequence of it or that's part of the
0: cause. Of it. Oh, yeah. Look, if if she is still around a mother with whom she cannot express needs or preferences or wants or be herself or talk about the past or if she is around a mother who is not meeting her needs now, that keeps her unmet needs as an infant right below the surface. And then when your son comes along with his needs, that causes her significant anxiety, right? And she wants to avoid your son because your son is re-evoking in her, her unmet needs from infancy. And then she's going to say, well, he's being clingy. We should put him back in school. Right.
7: And that's the thing. That's the thing Like she, like, and she always says, like, logically, I know this isn't true, but she feels overwhelmingly that she's not being, she's not a good mother. She's not a good wife. Um, you know, she does help me in my my business. You know, she does a few functions for my business from home. And it's like, you know she doesn't feel like she's good at that, and it's like you know, and it's like so the opposite on all these levels, and and the relationship with her mother is quite like the opposite. It's always like what she could do. Like she she's uh, she's an employee of mine, for instance, you know, and then there's always you know there's always these things you got to do, but it's like um, you know she brings up her childhood and her with her sister who's two years younger, and I've seen this in front of me. And they just want to pull their hair out because, that, nev- you know, I have no idea. I have no memory of that, that ne- or that never happened. And
0: oh, that's what her mother says? Yeah, this is a common
7: motif when it comes to anything in the past that's emotionally painful. It either didn't right. happen or it didn't exist. There's a lot of that kind of stuff.
0: Right. So if your wife has a pattern of discomfort breeds avoidance, then when her son makes her, avoid- makes her uncomfortable, what's she going to do? Right. What She's am going I going to avoid? By the way. Sorry?
7: What am I going to do is the real question, by the way.
0: Well, has your wife ever thought about therapy? She has been going.
7: Oh, she has been going? Okay. Yeah, not for a long time. It had started a long time ago. This has been going on for maybe a year, and it was very obvious to me. Um, and I was like, we were unable to really talk about it. And then she kind of,
0: wait, broke. wait, sorry, sorry. Didn't you say she had postpartum depression and your son is three and a half? I have a one year old too. And the postpartum depression was after the second child. And where is your wife in the birth order?
7: She is the oldest of two girls. Okay. Okay. And we have two boys.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, it could also be, of course, that she experienced significant mm, decreases in maternal involvement when the second child came along, this when she was a baby.
7: She, yeah, this is something that really she worried about a lot even before, you know, like how is she going to handle two? And I can tell you that two is a lot harder than um, the amount of stuff you got to do and just, you know, the stress oh, yeah. of being a parent. But yeah. I, it, But it is more than twice as fun, by the way, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And when it gets older, they'll cancel each other out a bit in the basement. But um, so, uh, you know, I am a big fan of direct honesty, right? So, uh, you know, I, I would certainly say, I mean, if this was my wife, right, I would say, look, you, you know, life is short. And, you know, people obviously don't live forever. And I think you need to have uh, a, a more real relationship with your mom. And if you need to go back into therapy to facilitate how to handle that, if you need to get your mom to come with you to therapy, you need to have a more direct, honest, and open relationship with your own mother. Because it has an effect on who you are as a mother. It also has an effect because when your your kids are watching you guys like hawks, right? Right. Right? Like the other day I had something I needed to dig out of my nose. <laughs> So I just – I went in and got it, right? Because it was driving me crazy, particularly one of my nose hairs. And of course, you know, know, what happens is my daughter's just staring at me. (laughs) Now, I'm not up to my elbow or anything, but, you know, I'm there. I'm in there. I'm digging for gold. And I'm like – because it just reminds you, they watch you all the time. And your wife is being watched by your children when she's with her mother, how she interacts, what she's like. And they will – Imbibe those values, no matter what you do or what you say to them. So, if they ever see your wife trying to talk to your mom about something, no, sorry, to her mom about something, and then she gets rejected or shut down or pushed back or avoided, and then she accepts it, they'll say, "Oh, that's what you do. That's what being an adult is." Right. Right. Everything you do in the house models what your children will become. And you want to model open, honest, connected, empathetic, and curious relationships to your parents in every one of your relationships. I mean, I won't treat someone badly around my daughter, no matter what. Yeah, You know, maybe if somebody actually pees in my lobster bisque, yes, but I will not do it. I'm friendly to the waitresses and so on. Now, if the waitress is really bad, then I'll say, well, I'm not going to give her a good tip because of X, Y, and Z, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I don't dislike her, but it was really inconvenient, and blah, blah, blah. Food was cold, had to send it back, and then it got the wrong right. order or whatever. got to teach the standing up for yourself. Yeah, like I don't want to teach her that, like, I am just smile no matter what, <laughs> you right. know, but, uh, but, but in terms of the people who come to our house – there's nobody who comes to my house that I cannot be honest with because I never want my daughter to see me being dishonest even by omission. Right. I mean, I don't want to do that for myself, but I certainly feel that I cannot model that for my daughter.
7: Right. Right, absolutely. My my wife has a tremendous amount of sympathy for uh for uh, yeah. communicator to her in other words and like dismantling the idea of the state always comes down to the fact that she was literally fed by the state as a child you know I had a single mother father was like out of the picture very early and then was like literally sadistic to her um, for a long time
0: with the mom knowing it and all this kind of stuff so well, but she wasn't fed by the state because the state has no money and the state has I, no food. Believe me, <laughs> you're don't dumb to the choir.
7: But that is um, that what ultimately it comes down to is yet I wouldn't have been able to eat. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, that's just hit so close to home for, her. you know. Wait,
0: but sorry. So she had a bad dad. But where was the um, where was the child support? Where's the alimony?
7: Uh, there was no payments on the child support.
0: No, no, but it's, it was, a, I mean, if she thinks that the state was somehow helpful, I mean, where was the state in getting that money?
1: Right. That's right. the law, right? Right, right.
0: Also, I mean, the state kept the money from her. It, it refused to go and get it. It did not get the money it was supposed to get. Right. It failed her. It didn't feed her. It failed her.
7: I see. Be, um, let me think how she would respond to that. Basically she I think she feels that they just would have been destitute. It wouldn't have mattered. You know, that like in other words the state is the only one that did anything at all. You know, which well, is, no, it, it's, it's no, no to, to be sorry,
0: to to be fair right. and to be annoying to be annoyingly no, precise. Annoying. It was not the state who failed her. It was her mother's choice of a husband. That that's
7: where that's where things that get fit. really excited in my house when I say that, anything like that.
0: Well, it was was her mother not responsible for who she chose to get married to?
7: Sure my my wife, it's it's. I don't know why it's very difficult for her to make that leap.
0: Well, I know why. Right, I know it's exactly. painful, obviously, right? No, oh, because because her mother is probably playing the victim.
7: Oh my God! I mean, she is you know the quintessential victim for sure.
0: Right. So so she plays the victim and she's like, well, I was abandoned by my husband. And, you know, people say that shit and uh, women in particular say this stuff. And I don't know how they get away with it. I don't know how they get away with it. I mean, (laughs) you you, could have chosen, I assume she didn't look like the elephant woman, right? She could have chosen any number of men to date she could have chosen to not get married she could have uh, you know she dated this guy she she got engaged to this guy she got married to this guy she chose to have a child oh, with this guy yeah i mean does she have zero capacity to judge human characteristics at all Is she I is basically I,
7: I never i never been able to get that far that would just be like driving the knife through the back but when when i but did, then you it-
0: are exposing your children to somebody who takes no responsibility for her life that is going to leave an impression on them. Well, that's the thing that's so weird is that she takes. And the, you don't call her on it. Well, she takes a tremendous. She takes like
7: too much responsibility when it comes to everything else, like all these other things. And you know, she's very responsible in her own life. That's the thing that's so odd about. What her. do you mean? She takes too much responsibility for all these? I don't know. What well, a lot of times she. A lot of times she thinks like you know. Well, because my son is too clingy, you know that that's like a reflection on her doing a bad job. Oh, wait,
0: this is your wife, not not your wife's mother. Oh, my wife's mother. I, I misunderstood what you said. Okay. No, no, no. I'm talking about when your when your grandma when when their grandma is around. Ah, uh, what know, they see is this- they see someone who's not taking responsibility, and yeah. that she gets away with it. Yeah, that's
7: a hundred percent true.
0: And then what's going to happen when they face difficulties in their life? They will know that. You respect people who don't take responsibility and that you have no problem with people who don't take responsibility. You don't call them out on it and they're welcome at your house anytime. Fair, that's fair. That's a fair point. And then people say, gosh, I don't know what happened with my teenagers. They just, you know, they went off the – I'm not saying this is going to happen because you sound right. like a great dad. But, you know, well, it's like, well, that. you exposed them for years with, like, yeah, this is great. This is fine behavior. She loves you, don't don't we love grandma and all that, right? And I'm not saying don't love her, I'm not saying she's your enemy or anything right. like that. But I'm just trying to bring to sort of awareness that your kids are gonna be absorbing everything. If um
7: if we have a relationship and an open disagreement about those subjects and are open with our children, is that a degenerate example to the children?
0: Sorry, can you say that again? <laughs> A relationship
7: with her but an openly you know an open conversation between us as a family that this is not acceptable these these aspects of grandma or whatever that is that like a degenerate example to the children
0: i mean it's it's a tough call because are you going to ask them not to talk to grandma about it
7: um i i would never do that just personally i just wouldn't do that
5: so
0: if they go up to your grandma and say, "My dad says you don't take responsibility,"
7: what's well, going to happen? Um, she's probably not going to like that too much, but I, I can't see her getting upset at her grandkids in any significant way.
0: Was well, she going to get upset at you? Yeah, of course. Of course, right? <laughs> right. 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 Well, I'm. I'm and okay look, I don't know what way. to do. I, honestly, I don't. There's no magical solution right. to any of this. But the important thing is to be conscious of the effect that your choices have in relationships around your children. There is nothing neutral that you can do around children. Everything is a communication of values, or lack thereof, right?
7: That, this is something that I struggle with, by the way, when I think about how to raise my children, because it's like, um, like you know, for instance, is that, there, there's something to be said for the skill of dealing with people in this situation, in, in many ways sadly this is more of a life life and have you know the marrying life but these are kind of then you know for better or for worse. So I sorry struggle. I just
0: you, you keep breaking up a little bit and I just oh, lost it I can usually figure it out but I lost a little bit there if you can repeat it. Sure. Um
7: well I just struggle with the idea that
0: on the one hand
7: you're absolutely right to want to be protective of your children, of course. But on the other hand, you also need to expose them to the things that they're gonna deal with. You know what I mean? But you're not dealing with it. Uh, you're avoiding it. Well then, then it is not possible then to maintain, you're saying, a relationship with Earth in that context.
0: I, I'm not saying anything. Well, you said to me that <laughs> you have to expose your kids on how to deal with difficult people, right? Well, I'm not saying that how are to be you let, it How are so. you dealing with a difficult person? You're avoiding it, right?
7: Well, let's say you, let's say you deal with it, right? That would mean confronting it directly, honestly, right?
0: I think that would be a good thing to do. Yeah.
7: Right. I do too, by the way. Um, And then, um, and then let's say there's like, you know, whatever, some acknowledgement, but maybe not much else. And as you're saying, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have to like love the person or end the relationship. So, but where does that leave you then? You know what I mean? Like, Well, where is that uh, that place where you have a relationship, but you're honest and direct, and uh, uh, you know a good teacher to your children, or is that is that impossible, an impossibility?
0: Well, I don't know because I mean it's it's impossible to predict how other people react to changed situations, right? Sure. Right? I mean if if you if, if you know if you walk up to me and hold out your hand for a handshake and I just stand there I mean, you're not going to stand there for 10 minutes. You got to do something with your hand. You probably pretend to be brushing your hair or scratching your nose or something like that, right? right. But you have to do something different if I don't do the usual, right? Yes, that's for sure. And, you know, the, but the important person in the equation, it certainly is your kids. But, you know, I would say even more importantly is, is your wife, right? So if your wife is around her mom and feels uh, stifled and feels like she can't talk and, and, and she has to cater to your mom's whatever, whatever, right? That is that is kind of debilitating because I'm sure your wife has a, a value called truth and, and honesty and 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 openness at least this is what you know she'd want kids kids you can come to me with anything kids you can tell me whatever's on your mind right
7: oh she's great like exploring their like inner worlds and their emotions like she's so sensitive to them and to me
0: you know and that's that's magnificent and good for her like man massive virtual hug fantastic but can she really is she that way when when her mom is around
7: She's very much set in the idea that her mom is who she is, that she's the more responsible person in the relationship. You know? Sorry, that who is? Your mom?
0: No. Uh, no my, sorry, your wife or her mom?
7: My wife is. Like when she okay. was a kid, she did all the laundry. She did the When she was seven years old, she did the cooking, the laundry.
0: I mean, like, wow. you know, it
7: was like, it was, and it's basically in a way, it's almost emotionally at least still like that,
0: you know? Well, no wonder she got postpartum. She didn't have a damn childhood. She had no childhood. Her father literally mm-hmm. locked her and her sister in a closet
7: with a light bulb hanging from the ceiling for like the whole weekend while he would do cocaine with his
0: girlfriend and all this other of stuff. Uh, Are you kidding me? No, I mean, this was her childhood. And then, you know, she- this is, wait, this is the guy her mom chose? This was her
7: father, not the boyfriend. This was her biological father that lived apart
0: this is the this is the guy that her mom chose as her father correct a drug addict who locked her in closets for a weekend
7: this would be like when she would go over to his house with her sister like for the weekend on the you know on occasion no i got it i got it pick her up you know
0: i got it did did wow I mean, it's crazy. Um, hang on. I'm just peeling myself off the ceiling here. I mean, well,
7: the, the, <laughs> the, the, God. the worst one I ever heard, so you can only imagine what really happened. My wife uh, witnessed her um, her baby sister, who was born very prematurely in front of her, by the way, um, witnessed like the father preventing the ba- her from rolling over as a baby, like physically. You know, um, so, uh, you know, the only thing that happened good
0: about her father... Wait, is, sorry, I don't, I don't understand that. You he, he, he witnessed her preventing her like, from rolling over? What does that yeah, mean? My
7: wife was like two, three years old and her baby sister is, you know, six months old. And like the fathers are preventing her from rolling over with his hand.
0: What? I don't understand that. Why would he do that? I can only
7: imagine that this is a, some sort of uh, sadistic pleasure.
0: Oh, you mean so the, the baby was trying to roll over and the, well, the father was preventing her because he liked watching her struggle or something?
7: I mean, my wife was two years old. I can only imagine that there was some really sick motivation here.
0: I can't even How think long? Oh, sorry. How long? How old was your wife when this guy was when when the marriage ended? She was
7: probably under two years old, and then he was in her life maybe she was five or six or so, like in and out sort of.
0: And why did the marriage end? Do you know? You know, that's a, that's um, that's something. That I can't necessarily give
7: you a straight ass around, but there was a lot of drugs and and craziness and things like that for sure.
0: And was the grandmom involved in these drugs? Um,
7: it's interesting. The the sister, the younger sister, is doing like all this research, and um, she's been going back to school to become a school counselor. And this is sort of something that's coming that she's kind of bringing to light. That's sort of one of these, you know, ambiguous things. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> okay, so you 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 can't get the truth about it, but there may have, I have
7: been. This, I have my sense of it from what she's told me, but I don't have, you know. Uh, I also have my wife, who you know loves her mother, and her mother was always the one that was there and doing this and making sure she did well in school. But you know, she had like nervous breakdowns. My wife, when she was eight years Wait, old. Wait,
0: sorry. What do you mean? You say your her mom was always the one who was there? Didn't you just say that you're your wife was the one who did the cooking and the laundry and the cleaning and the.
7: Oh right, right. That's that's why it's such a sick relationship in a way, you know.
0: You got to listen back to this. You, you'll notice when you veer off into storyland. Sorry. So, so wait. So, the your wife's mother did she know that this guy was a drug addict?
7: Well, I, I, she definitely knew. I mean, when she knew is is, is you know something on a. But understand. she
0: knew. She knew when she was sending the kids over. Oh yeah, and you know they would, you know,
7: never want to go, you know, and ah! of course they would they,
0: ah, want Yeah, and they would go back. So wait,
5: wait, wait, wait.
0: So you're saying Yeah, she sent her back. That the kid's grandmother knowingly sent their mother to a drug addict's house. Yeah. Yes. Knowingly. Yes. With no supervision. No drop-bys, no call-bys to make sure the kids were okay.
7: I I don't really know how that part went, but I know that they went back. Well, we know that they were in the
0: closet for the weekend. Right. So we have some idea how it went, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah! What if she did that to your kids? What if, if she was supposed to babysit for the weekend and she sent them over to a friend's place and that friend was doing drugs and your kids were locked terrified in the closet all weekend?
7: I mean, look, uh, frankly, frankly. No,
0: no. What, what, what would you do?
7: Oh, I mean, I would have gone crazy for a much lower threshold. You know, I mean. What would you do? If someone locked my kids up in a closet. If she did it. if my wife did it.
0: No, if your, if your wife's mother did it now. To your kids. They're going over to her place for the weekend, and she sends them over to some friend's place who's doing cocaine and locking them in a closet okay, for the well, weekend. we
7: would never see her again, and then we would use as much possible force against her as we could.
0: Okay, so this was done to the woman that you love and the mother of your children.
7: Right. Right, so what's the difference? So what's the difference? There shouldn't be any difference.
0: And it's not acknowledged, as far as I understand it, or apologized for, or restitution made for.
7: I know. It's so hard. I mean, like, I understand, like, to you, it's so clear. like, And I see that, too, by the way. And I'm, like, stuck in this weird world because, you know, I live with her emotionally, too, of course. So it's like, you know, it's so hard to get through that. She's going to therapy. She's telling me how brutal it is that they talk about her childhood and... It's just so it takes everything out of her, and you know, so it's very tough. And then, of course, like very quickly, you know, I, I'm perceived by her to lack empathy towards her,
0: and it's it's really rough. Do you mean towards her or towards her mom? Towards well,
7: ultimately towards her, but also towards her mom.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, if empathy is such a value, you know, then where's her mom's empathy?
7: You know, I I don't know why it has to be this one way street. That that is
0: so hard to break through. Because if you're around a narcissist, everything is a one way street. I, I don't know uh, if the mom's a narcissist. I don't mean, I can diagnose anyone, but everything is a one way street, and you adapt to to the most irresponsible and selfish person's needs. When you're around selfish people, everything is one way.
7: What do you What do you What are, are there any Is there any advice you could give me as to maybe a different way to broach this or I mean, I, I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong, but I never seem to make any progress into this.
0: Well, I don't know, obviously, what you should do. I mean, I, we've only talked twice and, right. and so on. It's very but to I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of anyone who hurts my wife. Right. Believe me, I'm, I'm with you. And if someone's hurt my wife and there's not restitution... And there's not acknowledgement. I mean, I'll just tell you, for me, I'm not a fan of that person. Right. I am not. I mean, I can't dictate, obviously, who my wife sees or what it means, her choice, anything. I am not a fan of that person. Absolutely. I don't interact with them. I am not positive or friendly towards that person. And I'll make it very clear that you did incredibly harmful things to my wife. You exposed her to drug dealers. You sent her over to unstable people's places. You ruined her childhood. You, you used her as a, uh, an inappropriately mature house slave. Like, this is wrong. What you did as a mom, you may have done some wonderful things. Maybe you made, made great birthday cakes and sung her lullabies every night. But there were things that you did that were really, really bad. And you need to acknowledge that. You need to have the basic respect for what my wife has gone through to at least acknowledge that what she went through was wrong because that will lift a burden from her. Because until the people who've wronged us acknowledge that they've wronged us, we are continually fighting against their unreality, against their rejection, against their avoidance, and especially if they're parents, they have so much power over our consciousness that it's almost always a losing battle. Until the wrongs are acknowledged, you expend massive amounts of emotional and spiritual energy trying to maintain the reality in the face of their blunt cold-faced constant denials I know and it wears you down
7: by the way like I can't me
0: you down I can't
7: maintain the energy of outrage for six Thanksgivings you know what I mean
0: yeah where's you down so where's you down and so you know the, the first thing when people have wronged you the first thing they need to do is to acknowledge that they've wronged you it needs to be said Because the degree to which they do not acknowledge that they've wronged you, they are perpetuating the abuse. Right. Because they are saying, because I feel uncomfortable admitting things I did that were bad, I am going to selfishly avoid and ignore it, and therefore you will pay and continue to pay just as you did in the past. It is a continuation of the original problem it's It's them selfishly avoiding their own discomfort and heaping more upon their children I mean if your mom if your grandmother sorry, if if, if your wife's mother had acknowledged this stuff I'm guessing that it would be much less likely your wife would have gone through postpartum depression in other words she would have been able to celebrate the birth of her child rather than view it as, as a, a grey cloud to walk through it's selfish when you've harmed people to not acknowledge it because it continues to selfishly uh, avoid your pain. You continue to selfishly avoid your pain while heaping more pain on them and more, de- more avoidance and more confusion and more depression. And uh, like you just, you're just continuing to roll an iron ball that they have to carry. Right. Because your back is too tender. Well, it's your damn iron ball. You pick up the goddamn thing. Right.
5: I don't
7: really know what to say to that. I think you gave me a lot to think about, and um, I think that it's like, um, I think that it's it's definitely like um, something that I got to do. But at the same time, um, you know, the consequences of that of them being reject, rejectionist towards what I say is, you know, from what I know about her, is is very high. Um, well, so
0: let I, me I, be I, really, really ridiculously sexist here. <laughs> 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 Let me just be ridiculously sexist here. And I'm, you know, unapologetically so. Okay. But okay. man to man, husband to husband, you got to really take care of your wife in this situation. If, if this level of abuse and neglect a- occurred and remains unacknowledged, you have to step up as the husband, as the man of the house, and you have to build a little bit of a wall around your wife so that she can heal. I don't know what that looks like. I have no idea what that looks like. So this is all bullshit metaphor useless time. And to be fair, if, you, if I was talking to the wife and you were in this situation, I'd say exactly the same thing. But I'm going to appeal to the patriarchy here for what it's worth. Okay. You cannot let this dysfunction dictate your values. Or what happens if and if they get upset? No. You have your values, you have your moral core, you have your moral strength. I believe, and look, don't do anything until you talk to your wife's therapist, or, you know, this is just my opinion. I can't prove any of this stuff, right? I'm just telling you what I would do. What I have done in my relationships is I know what my values are, that abuse must be acknowledged, wrongs must be righted, honesty is the value. Now, People step up to that, maybe they don't know about it, maybe they've never experienced it, then maybe you need some patience, it might take weeks, it might take months, but you keep revisiting the conversation. Okay. And your goal is to take the burden off your wife and keep it from accumulating on your children.
7: Is there anything you could tell me to make it seem to her like I'm not trying to be aggressive to her? Like that seems to be a problem when we talk about it is that she gets like very defensive and it's like one of those situations that isn't like a normal conversation between me and my wife. You know, women could do that thing where it's like, Oh, anything you say as a man is just aggressive cause I don't like it. And it's very, it's very unusual for us to have that. But that's like one of the things that kind of,
0: that's, I mean, that's down- her mom. That's her mom speaking through her, right? Your, your wife does not sound like she has much of a manipulative bone in her body. Oh, not at all. And you have to be aware with your wife when it's her mom talking through her. Right? Are you talking to your wife or are you talking to your wife's mom in your wife? Are you talking to... I mean, it's interesting, you know, when you get skilled in conversations, and I'm not saying you're not, right? It sounds like you guys have great conversations. But we're not always talking to the same person, right? So if you say something to your wife that is going to threaten her mother's selfish interests, right. then that will awaken the alter ego of the mom in your wife. Is there
7: any way to dispel that or talk around that? Um, is there any you know, technique to doing that?
0: Well, I mean, you can read Internal Family Systems Therapy by Dr. Richard Schwartz. He's been on this a show. It's a great way of understanding that we are an ecosystem of competing personalities. And if your wife has had a habit of having to conform to a selfish person, then that selfish person is going to be in there and is going to step right into the control room and take over your wife when any conversation that happens that might threaten that person's interests. Right? you So, so how you disarm that? I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I don't know. But the first thing to recognize is that it's happening, right? Right. Because if you, when you, and when you say, well, this, this never happens with my wife, except in these situations. Well, in this situation, you're talking about something that is negative to her mother's selfish interests. Okay. Now, your wife could not, I believe, have survived as a child, or at least she wouldn't have taken that risk, if she had actively acted against her mother's self-interest, right? You said that your wife, sorry, it sounds like I'm cornering you, what you said, What I mean is that you said that your wife did not, as a child, want to go to the drug addict dads, right? No. So the question is, why did she go? Because she had to. Why did she have to go? Because your mom made her. Right. I mean, your mom certainly wasn't... I mean, she didn't even make this guy pay alimony or child support. It's not like she's forceful in everything, right? Right. So she had to go and get locked in a fucking closet all weekend while this asshole did coke with his shitty girlfriend, right? Correct. So she could not stand up for herself and say no. Right. And so she could not act in a way that threatened her mother's selfish interests. And so when you start talking now about something that is going to threaten her mother's selfish interests, that inner mother awakens and says, -uh. nah, you are not allying yourself with anyone against my selfish interests. I will step in and interfere with any bond you make with anyone who is going to be against my selfish interest. So how do
7: you put the mirror between those two people?
0: Again, you're asking me these questions like this. <laughs> I'm going to give you a magic phrase, a secret really handshake or something like right. that or, or some sort of exorcism <laughs> ritual or something. I don't know. But the knowledge is the first component, right?
7: Right. I'm just wondering how you separate the two people's interests if they're so closely aligned.
0: Oh, no, no. They're not closely aligned. If they were closely aligned, they wouldn't be an alter ego. They're not, no, no, look, so you're, you're, her mother wanted stuff that she didn't want. They're not, I mean, she had to conform, but you conform out of fear and develop the scar tissue of an alter ego because you have the exact opposite desires of the authority figure.
7: Okay, so you need to have, you need to introduce reason here,
0: of course, that that's the key to this. Well, you can ask her what if, you know, what if your mom did to our kids for one weekend what she did to you So often. And she would freak out at the very thought. Right. And then you can say, that's how I feel about what she did to you. Ah, I like that. That makes sense. Because there's no reason why your children are deserving of more protection than your wife was as a child. Or even now. Right. Right, so what... What your wife suffered, if you, if you can get her to picture that occurring to her children, that's a way of connecting with her own pain. And then when you say, When I see your mother, I think of that happening to you. I think of you sitting in that closet with your sibling, with a bare swing and light bulb, not knowing what the hell was happening out there, terrified, hungry, got to pee. Terrified to go out. No one to call. No support. No security. No stability. No love. Fear. And that your mother sent you there. And that you either didn't tell her about it because you knew she didn't want to hear or you did tell her about it. She didn't do anything but send you back. Horrifying. You know, I can't, I have trouble reading stuff. Like I'm uh, I was refreshing for a variety of reasons uh, Thomas Sowell's uh, book on, on slavery, or his chapter on slavery. And, I mean, there's such gruesome stuff in there. I have to stop listening to it because when they talk about cutting the throats of 24 slaves and throwing the bodies overboard so they don't get caught by the English, Jesus. I see that. Like, I, I, I imagine that. Uh, you, the head being pulled back, the knife going through. Like, I, it makes my body contract, all my muscles contract. I have to really measure the amount of historical horror I imbibe because it goes right into me and I picture it vividly. Blood splashing on the decks, people falling forward, twitching, being thrown overboard. Some of them half alive or maybe alive even. They don't know how to swim because they grew up in a jungle in Africa. I don't know, right? So I feel that 24 times in a row, body shocks. That's part of what I have to do to limit my, my exposure to evil. And that degree of empathy, we often have with our own children, but we don't have with ourselves as children. But that connection needs to be made. Because the needs of your wife as a child, and the needs of your children, the needs of your wife as a child for protection, for love, for security, for stability, for empathy, for curiosity, for protection, are as vivid and strong and necessary as your children's need for all of that. And anyone who would violate your children in the way that your wife was violated would not be your friend until there was absolute security in that relationship again, which means acknowledgement, which means restitution, which means taking on the ownership of guilt rather than harming others through denial. So if you can get your wife to connect with her mother doing this to her kids, then she can find through that a way to connect to herself as a child and she can then understand that your urge to protect her as a child and the child still within her is as strong as your urge to protect your own biological children and for the same reason and from the same love and from the same strength and from the same compassion. I don't see how she can view that as aggressive. So is it um
7: is it gonna be a um what happens when a person makes that transcendence and uh, seeks true acknowledgement and at that point either like doesn't receive the acknowledgement or receives like less than total acknowledgement is that a um is the liberating experience the earlier transcendence in other words it does happen before the acknowledgement in other words once she gets to that point is it crucial that she receives acknowledgement? I mean, obviously it would be nice.
0: Well, I mean, yes, it's... You know, because acknowledgement is... is the first step towards non-repetition, right? I mean, the reason why we need people who acknowledge their wrongdoings is so that they have less likelihood of repeating them.
7: Right, right, definitely.
0: And, And without acknowledgement of wrongdoing, the repetition is for certain. It's not even a possibility. It is for certain. Because by the very act of not acknowledging, as I said, it is selfishly hurting your victim for the sake of your own immediate emotional comfort.
7: That's right. And uh, and the truth is that she needs to do this for so many other reasons, for her own children, for herself, that, you know, I mean, the truth Is really always the way to go, and that's one of the reasons I really relate to your thinking so well. Um,
0: the only well, I predict that if, if this doesn't occur, yeah, then you guys, I mean, you've got toddlerhood, you've got the latency period, but once teenage stuff hits and hormones hit and the size differential decreases between you and your kids, I think that you need to get this stuff squared away now, right, in order to avoid real problems in, in the teenage years. I mean, a lot of parenting is, is aiming at the teenage years, right? And yeah. I've talked to people who've been peaceful parents, they say, oh, the teenage years were great, right? But you got to aim at that, and that's a pretty narrow <laughs> thing to aim at, right? It's a pretty small target, especially in sort of modern society. And so you really want to aim at that, and, and what you need to survive the teenage years is you need your children's respect, which means that you have to have acted with integrity when you had all the power as a parent. Right. Because, because that power is going to diminish. And if they know you acted with integrity and with virtue and with courage and with resolution to protect them, if you did that when you had all the power, then when they gain power over you, which inevitably happens as they get older, they will use that power as wisely as they saw you using it. Right. But if they see you weasel out, if they see you avoid, if they see you minimize, if they see you compromise, then they will recognize that more power means lower standards. And then when they get more power as a teenager, their standards will descend as well.
7: Yeah. Okay. This is like, this is so much related to me as also. I was really taught that, like, I was so indoctrinated into that way of thinking about my father that I Which way see, of thinking? That way of thinking that like uh like power is weakness, like it's just obligation for soul. Pure obligation, you know what I mean, to everyone, just because this one's your brother or this one's your mother. I mean, there's nothing behind it, you know. I kinda grew up that way with a father like that. And um I could see this weakness now in my own life, you know, a lot clearer, especially with things like this, I mean.
0: Well, again, I, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as weakness. I mean, I'm not ignorant because I don't know the exact height of Mount Kilimanjaro, right? It's just prior to knowledge. You're in a state of nature. Once you have the knowledge, then you have the responsibility. But I wouldn't start characterizing it as stuff like weakness well, or anything. I think that's a it might be negative more, judgment.
7: It might, it might be the wrong word, but I feel the negative emotional impulse of guilt and crap that I know is just garbage that was thrown onto me when I was a kid. Like, I feel that palpably, you know, still, you know?
0: So, I can and, and you always will. It, you know? No, listen, you always will. Listen, you, you are very good at English. Oh, thank you. I've, no one's <laughs> ever said that to me, by the way. <laughs> Your English is wonderful. Now, let's say you don't speak English for 10 years, and then somebody comes up to you and speaks to you in English. Will you understand what they say? Yeah, sure. Of course you will. You will never, ever not speak English. Right. Right, So in these childhood patterns, we will never, ever not speak them. There's a language called abuse. There's a language called dysfunction. And people speak it. And if I knew a language, and every time I heard that language, it told me horrible, scary, ugly, unpleasant things. Like if every time anyone ever spoke to me in English, they would say the most ugly, vicious, and nasty things. Right. then I would have to either get them to stop speaking English or I would have to not talk to them. Right. And that's how it is with the language of abuse, right?
7: That's a way, there's no way to reprogram that, you don't think. that emotional aspect of it, the physiological aspect of it is stuck.
0: I don't I mean until someone can tell me how a native English speaker can stop understanding English not, I, I don't think there's thoughts, any way to do it It's just such a dreary thought No it's but it's it's facts as far as I know like if my mom came and knocked on my door tonight I would shit my pants That sucks but, but but I know that I know And it's they say this about too, addiction awesome. like you you can't you can't put yourself in the environment because of the triggers Like, how do you stay sober? I think it was uh, Steve Tyler from – is it Steve Tyler? Aerosmith. Aerosmith singer. Like, you know, they called him and Joe Perry the toxic twins, right, because they were just snorting up half of Peru throughout the 80s, right? And he said, like, well, when we went sober, like, we had to stop everything. We, We couldn't be around the same people. We couldn't be in the same environment. And, you know, he also had multiple addictions. He was an alcoholic as well. And he said, now, like 20 years later or 15 years later, now maybe I can have a beer on a hot day. But I can't go back to the clubs. I can't go back to the people. I can't go back to the scene. This is what they say. To, To quit addiction, you have to break the associations you cannot quit smoking and be around a bunch of smokers doing all the same things you used to do before you were before you quit. Right. And so for me, like I took that very much to heart. So I had a habit called, I speak abuse. I know abuse. So I had to either get people to stop being abusive or I had to not be around abusive people because that's what they say around drunks and, and, and addicts and so on. You just cannot be around those people. Man,
7: that's good advice. I mean, it's not. A, but I mean,
0: it's not. A that's speech. and that's not my advice. That's right. again, I'm no expert, but that's my understanding nope. of what that all means. And and I don't see how abuse would be any different than nicotine or or, or gambling or or heroin or any of the other addictions. Oh, are we still on? He's back. All right. Sorry, I don't know what
7: happened. Sorry.
0: I think I think uh, that that your mother-in-law, uh, <laughs> who works doubtless for the NSA, anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, listen. I mean that, that was really all, all I sort of had to say uh, around that. If that uh, if that helps, it does. It does. I never heard
7: anyone apply that to abuse before. By the way, that that's very helpful.
0: Right, and it's tragic that people don't do that, but it's understandable, right? Unfortunately, oh, yeah. there are quite a lot of people like your your, your mother-in-law.
7: I always wondered when Hitch, Nietzsche said, I think it was Nietzsche that said that history is a nightmare that I'm trying to awake, or something to that yeah. effect. Yeah. I always wondered if he's talking about like the history of man or his own history. You know, it's like this.
0: Oh, most of what he like. was writing about was his own childhood. Like when people, there's a writer who said, "The past is a different, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there." Um, what he's basically saying is that. People in the present deny what happened in the past. Anyway, it doesn't really. But, but yeah, most people, when they're talking about world history and stuff, they're mostly talking about themselves and their own histories.
7: Well, I really thank you for a fantastic conversation. I'd love to talk to you about your investing podcast one time. And um, I don't necessarily think there was a contradiction in there, but there's something that always had bothered me about that that I always wanted to talk to you about.
0: Well, feel free to. I certainly want to make sure that we keep coming over and refining what we talk about here. So uh, please feel free to call back anytime. And, of course, uh, drop me a line if you can. Let me know how it goes. Uh, I certainly wish you and your wife the best with this. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And thanks, everyone, for, of course, such wonderfully engaging it really the time flies you know my brain is like <laughs> incandescent during these calls afterwards it goes completely dark and i have to remind myself that it's important to talk to other people in the household <laughs> but uh, i really do appreciate uh, everyone's uh, uh questions great uh, feedback and wonderful stuff that is um Uh, that is going on in this conversation. This is the most important stuff to talk about in the world uh, because if we can't build the future on reason, uh, it's going to be built on force to the detriment of all. FDRURL.com forward slash donate and uh, have yourself a wonderful week. I'll talk to you all Sunday morning. Oh, yeah, we got a speech coming up at the University of Toronto. Mike, would you like to fill the listeners in on the details? While Mike is... uh, pulling on himself um i just wanted to uh, mention that uh, uh for those who donate uh the novel that i wrote like 20 years ago about russian revolutionaries and the choice between uh changing the world through force and changing yourself through reason that's a great a great novel i was very very proud of that and uh, you get it for free uh, if you donate to the gold level it's like 20 bucks a um Uh, A month, or as I like to think about it, one Bitcoin every 14 years or something
2: (laughs) like that these days. um, I got the info for Saturday. Yeah, go. Uh, Did I stall it (laughs) that Good,
0: good, because the next part was going to be really filthy.
2: The Students for Liberty Canadian Regional Conference, November sixteenth, which is this coming Saturday, at the University of Toronto, St. Michael's College. Steph will be giving a speech on the true cost of war. And the organizer just sent
0: me the itinerary. What, war? On war. The true cost of war Why no no. I thought it was the true cost of war. Oh. I mean I've been doing all this research with my bitcoins <laughs> and that Japanese hand job machine. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Back oh, man, okay, I got to write this down. Oh, I can't write it down. Do you know why? My <laughs> hand is cramping. Anyway, it's going will be on at uh, five
2: forty-five to six forty-five Saturday, and it's uh, going to be a lot of people. Oh, 45 p.m. to six forty-five. I thought it was in the morning. No. Yeah, they just sent me the itinerary, and they got you on later. So, uh, right after. Am that is I closing the place? No, Lawrence joint? Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education is finishing it off he's the keynote for the night
0: well he will be finishing it off if he can wrestle the microphone from my cold dead hands <laughs> you know once i have it uh, <laughs> well they do you know, have dinner just,
2: scheduled directly after your speech so they might be able to lure you away with that
0: hey i can talk over silverware even without a mic <laughs> okay, i'll just loom enough. i'll just loom up you know they usually have a hole in the middle of the table i'll just loom my way up through it and you know with a little exacto knife cut my way through and slowly rotate while continuing to spew in my rational Stuff. I don't know
2: how. Anyway, yeah, no, great. I like. I promise that for Christ's
0: sake. Right. (laughs) Japanese sex machine. Check. Okay. I think we're all (laughs) we're all set for something which will be broadcast live. (laughs) So um, yeah, have yourself a wonderful week, anyone, everyone. I'll talk to some people Saturday live and talk to Sunday virtually. Thanks, Emil. Take care.